This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. Wednesday night, I had the privilege of doing an episode with Rewi Hajj. If you haven't okay. heard of him, read his books. He has a terrific book called De Niro's Game, which came out in 2006. A more recent book, which is what I wanted to talk to him about, Beirut Hellfire Society, which came out in 2018. The episode turned into his story and what he saw changing in Ashrafiyyi in the 1960s and 1970s. It's a story that I'm not too familiar with. But after the episode ended, he hopped on my electric scooter and I took this author for a little ride throughout his childhood. Shaitewi, Rmej, Meizi, Marim Khayr, all the way up to Sesin. And we spent about two hours with him pointing at his life as it changed fundamentally. During the episode, he acknowledged that this book, I think, is the backbone to this discussion tonight. It's about a part of Lebanon that's nearly extinct. How he defines that word, I think, is how we're going to debate tonight, politely. He thinks of it as two things, and I think it's actually divided in two here. A cosmopolitanism that's on the decline, and a community that's facing what he thinks of as potential extinction. And I think it was the best way to think through tonight's episode. So that's Wednesday night. Let me take you back now 20 years ago. Where is Sarmad Salibi? Is he here? There he is. He's in the back. Is that him waving? Could we give a round of applause to this gentleman, Sarmad Salibi? I met Sarmad 20 years ago. I was looking for a cheap room to rent, and I found a room. They kicked you out of the house? Later. (laughs) Okay. Actually, I'll get get to that. I was looking for affordable rent to go to AUB and live a student lifestyle. And I wandered up Sadet Street, just past Mekhfir Hbesh, and to the right was a store called WeSet, and dangling were the remains of a pizza store that once was there. And on the first and second floor were a bunch of foreigners and local students living in shared accommodation, 12 bedrooms, six bathrooms, two kitchens, a rooftop, the only pension that was opened in Beirut those days, what now we would consider a hostel. I helped my way in, and thanks to Sarmad, I had the best years of my life. That building is gone. Nadim, you're right. It was knocked down in 2009. Mm. Old rent issues, property dispute. 
But those six years, I think, defined the way I see Lebanon. And in 2008, during the street battles in Hamra, all of us were hiding under music instruments. Left behind from a former music school, hmm. Lebanese foreigners ducking for cover under a grand piano. When there were gunshots outside, there was a sniper shooting at us at the roof. We were hiding together. And I think it's either the week or two weeks after that, Sadmad showed up, checking on us, making sure we're fine. And he introduced me to a man that I think defines Lebanese history. He introduced me to Kamel Salibi. Everyone knows this book, A House of Many Mansions. Sarma took me with him to Kamal Salibi's home. And the first thing he said to me, are you related to Hassan Shatah? He's the only person in this country who's ever referred to an uncle mm. rather than my father. And I said, how the hell do you know Hassan Shatah? Mm -hmm. He's a student at AUB, a member of Kate'ib. Oh, yes. The only Muslim, I think, in Kata'ib. <laughs> I know, two, a couple more. Yeah. You know a couple of more. Okay, so there's... Both called talk, Hassan. All, that's the same Hassan. <laughs> <laughs> and this man was not shy about it. In the 1960s, an AUB student from Tripoli brandishing his Kata'ib credentials. That wasn't throughout the family. That was just him. And Kamel Salibi taught him. And after that, he pointed to a framed birth certificate, the Khraj Eid, and he said, look, and there was a line dashed through what should be your sect. There was no sect there. Yeah. And he emphasized that he did this. It's his doing. Mm. And actually, it's the first time I think I ever saw something like that. And that's some 15 years ago. And it stuck with me that a man who wrote about power sharing and communal harmony and really the modern history of Lebanon could also be secular at its core and want that removed. Those years, I actually mm. met someone else. Very, very briefly. This is a brick. It's not a book. It's <laughs> 600 pages. It weighs a lot. Samir Asir. I met him briefly at the Prague, actually right before he died. And I was reading a book about Lebanese history in Sessin when he was killed. And I think mm. that moment changed my life. That's when I became enamored in Beirut's story. I learned a lot from this book. I learned a lot from his politics, his very eloquent way of describing a problem we live through today. He's the reason I started my old Walk Beirut tour. He's the reason I was inspired to pick up from where someone like this left off. And he shaped me in many different ways. People often ask me, why are you still here? And they assume it's my father. No, it's this man. It's what he left behind. So that book stayed with me. AUB. <clears throat> I stayed in Ras Beirut. I eventually moved to Ashrafi. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> I eventually moved to Ashrafi. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you take it personally if I didn't? <laughs> Oh, there they are. <laughs> <laughs> I meant I stayed in Ras Beirut. <laughs> and now I live in Rewi Hajj in his mind, in his childhood. And I feel slightly more comfortable in his memory than I do in the Ras Beirut of today, mm. which means things are changing. 
This is really the backbone, I think, to the conversation. We see a similar problem. I think we have different ways of looking at it through narrative. Maybe we don't have the same solutions moving forward, but there is something that's missing and it's on the decline and we may well witness its extinction. What that word is, we'll get into today. Nadeem Shahadi is a friend, a frequent writer to Arab News, recently the executive director of LAU in New York. I met you in Boston when you were at Tufts. I think I met you when you were still at Chatham House for the first time. <clears throat> and we've become friendly over the years. Nadim holds the record. This will be your seventh appearance on this podcast. Okay. Hisham <laughs> <laughs> Bounassif. Academically, I won't get too deep into your accomplishments, although you have published, not necessarily on the subject we're going to discuss tonight, but you're an accomplished author. Is it McKinnon? Cl Claremont McKenna. Claremont McKenna University, tenured. Mm -hmm. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, and on sabbatical. Yes. And thanks to that sabbatical, you've become part of the story. This is a subject I think that was left to the margins, unfortunately and unfairly. It's an academic like yourself that can help shape it, explain it, and you've become a household name. So this is a subject that I want to dive deep into. But let's start with the background. AUB, Ross Beirut. Keslik, Mount Lebanon. Indiana University. Indiana <laughs> University, Chatham House. Oh, oh yeah. The UK, America. There is, I think, a background that has, has not been explored. And allow me to start with you, Nadim. I think Ross Beirut still defines you, even when Ross Beirut is no longer Ross Beirut. And I've learned a lot from the way you describe your interpretation of many words, sectarianism, secularism, Ottoman cosmopolitanism, everything we've discussed before. But is it fair to say that your initial years and your experience in Ras Beirut and AUB is really the foundation for the way you see things moving forward? Is that the backbone to where you are right now? When you write in Arab news, when you sometimes show up on TV, when you talk to me, is that something that is still in you many, many decades later? Um, I mean, it applies to everybody. I mean, your your childhood is is your formative years. It's up to, I think, you're formed by the place you've lived in till the age of seventeen. But I want to to comment on on your description of the change. The whole world changes in forty years. Mm. <clears throat> so. To bring it to uh, to preempt a bit of, of what you're you're distinguishing between Ras Beirut and and uh, Mount Lebanon and Ashrafi and all that and Kaslik, uh, I don't think they can exist without each other. So Ras Beirut, as it as it was, which is a cosmopolitan secular place where people mixed very naturally, could not have existed if there was no. Ashrafiye and Dahye and Tariq Jdide and and it's the way the way uh, uh, cities in the Mediterranean and in Ottoman uh, in the Ottoman world operated. 
you had quarters. You had a Jewish quarter, a Turkish quarter, an Armenian quarter, a Maronite quarter, Albanians, Europeans, uh, you name it. And everyone felt some sort of security in their quarters when they went back there at night. And they interacted very naturally in the middle, in, in the Ras Beirut of these cities where people interact naturally. And the interaction is a bit of hypocrisy, is a bit of, they're different people when they, when they, when they interact in, in, the, in the city. And when there is tension, that's when you have sectarianism. People, people are not sectarian or not sectarian. You're not either or. When, if there is sectarian, if there is tension, people, people regroup to their quarter where they feel secure, where they have protective boundaries. And, uh, and that, that, that preserves the, the peace in, 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 in a way. So Ras Beirut flourished as long as the boundaries in the rest of the country were safe and, there, and sectarianism was not that, that uh, pronounced. In, mm. in, so so that, there's an interaction. It's not like a separate area. In your mind, when you're writing today, even when it's not directly about Lebanon only, let's say you're focusing on the region and changes in the region, mm. does AUB and Ras Beirut still fit into your writing? Well, uh, yes. I mean, AUB, certainly, I mean, I, I was in America for seven years mm. and I, I wrote a piece that uh, American-Arab relations is not uh, Donald Trump meeting Abdel Fattah Sisi. American-Arab relations is... Uh, uh, missionaries, American missionaries coming to Beirut almost exactly 200 years ago when America itself was less than 40 years old and they were half of it were savages. I mean, uh, California wasn't, wasn't even part of it. And uh, they, they learned from us as much as we learned from them. And, they, and the interaction between... Uh, Americans and and our and the whole Arab world is through that process rather than rather rather than uh, the, the politics we have since World War Two, if you like, mm -hmm. which which has changed. Yeah. So I'll segue over to Hisham by saying that, for better or worse, I'm a product of the same thing. Meaning, I grew up in Hamra, I went to AUB, I studied there, got my master's degree there, I lived there. My mom still lives there. Even when I don't feel at ease in every part of Hamra or Ras Beirut, the way I once did, I still think of it as home, for better or worse. Mm. Even the podcast's name is a tribute to the trees of AUB, the trees of knowledge, the Banyan trees. And what drew me to someone like Samir Asir was his complexity. Meaning, he wrote in French, in Arabic. He was, I think, Syrian and Palestinian a Christian who was comfortable in among leftists in West Beirut and someone who could actually fit into March 14 without shame. And I like mm -hmm. that. I like the layers and the complexities within him. And I think that's kind of where I find myself, always holding on to something, knowing that it's on the decline. In your childhood, is there anything in that story, let's say, that doesn't fit into the way you grew up here? I mean, uh, I'm from the Shouf, and uh, if we're going to talk about my childhood, we'll have to talk about one of the most violent episodes of the Lebanese civil war, which mm -hmm. is Harb al-Jabal. We are here in 
Hamdun or next to Hamdun. Yeah. Um, so my childhood was very much uh, defined by Harb al-Jabal um, because I went through Hisar uh, al-Amar, a hundred days of really difficult, you know, probably the most difficult hundred days in, in the history of contemporary Lebanon, certainly in the history of the civil war, where the Christians were actually cleansed from, from the Shuf. And they ended up uh, in their Lamar for a hundred uh, days, and then they had to leave the Shuf mm. uh, completely, and they became refugees in their in their own land. So no, I mean uh, there is not a lot of cosmopolitan uh, cosmopolitan uh, dimension in, in that story. It's more uh, if we're talking about my childhood. Yeah, uh, it's a story about uh, a young person opening up to life against the backdrop of backdrop of ethnic cleansing. Because that was, that's Harb al-Jabal, ethnic cleansing, happening for the second time in, in what, uh, 120 years. Um, so there's nothing rosy about that experience. But, uh, but then again, I'll have to say that I, I feel you are a bit romanticizing and essentializing Hamra. Because Hamra is also the place, for instance, where Hazb al-Sur al-Qawm al grew as an organization. And if there's one party we can call proto-fascist, that would that would be it, and that's Hamra as well. Uh, AUB is the place where Anton Saade taught uh, German to uh, to people. So uh, Hamra is not only defined yeah. by cosmopolitanism, just as Mount Lebanon is not in the, the ultra Maronite castle or the or, or like the the you know the ultra I don't know Druze castle that that you think of it. There are a lot of people that I mean. Um, there's a lot of uh, interaction between communities, intera- opening up to the world that happened in and because of Mount Lebanon. Mm. And there's a lot of uh, political extremism that came out of Hamra. So this this Mount Lebanon versus Hamra thing that you seem to be doing, and it's not convincing uh, mm. to me. So this is this is one dimension. The other dimension, be which nice, I find... Hisham, be nice, Hisham. Be nice. This is the first <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> I've already... What have I done? I've, I've romanticized. I've put things in, in bleak, That's, black and white. Yeah, I mean... It, it, you're, you're, like, because you're ideological. I remember that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I think... so. I'm, I'm, no, I, I'm seriously... I, I mean, uh, yeah. uh, George Habash studied in, in, in AUB. Uh, um, Wadi Haddad studied. I mean, Wadi Habab was a terrorist. Um, a lot of political extremism, a lot of anti-Lebanese uh, 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 ideologies grew uh, or, or flourished in, in, in Hamra. And that's not good even from a liberal perspective because I feel Lebanon uh, as an experiment had a lot of liberal aspects to it. So this the destruction of Lebanon uh, was uh, a disaster for modernity in, in the Levant, for liberalism in the Levant. And, and lots of that came from Hamra, whereas lots of uh, opening up to new languages, opening up to uh, Europe, opening up came came from Mount Lebanon. So this Mount Lebanon versus Hamra thing you're doing, I find very mm. questionable from a from a historical uh, uh, perspective. Let me just disagree with that. I also find, you, I you, find you, you, hold on, I yeah. have to interrupt. Yeah, because okay. you've already asserted certain things that are not true. Okay, I'm so, not cool. questioning. I'm actually trying to learn. Yeah, okay. Mm. So there's no prejudice towards Mount Lebanon. Yeah, or there's no favoritism. It's really how somebody grows up. Yeah. So they're not saying Mount Lebanon. We're doing this in Pamdun. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. I love Pamdun. No, you. I, there's no question. Let, let me let me yeah. ask it in a way that maybe you won't take it. It's, I'm not making it personal. It's trying to understand the foundation. Yeah. Uh, you're you're what you're saying is all true. There's nothing incorrect in terms of the names you mentioned or, or even the the parties that are. 
very, very uh, pathetic today. Yeah. Let me let me rescue you. You already need rescuing. Let me rescue myself. Then you rescue me. But but there's I think back to AUB as that is not. The mainstream. So let, let me give you an example. Before my time, yeah. Uh, one of the best stories I've read about AUB and Ras Beirut, by extension, I think it's it's the third chapter of a book called Dream Palace of the Arabs. Oh, yeah, of course. Fuad yeah. Ajami. There's a story about a poet, great guy, Khalil Khalil who's a Ras Beiruti and goes to AUB. He's an SSNP member, and he's a Lebanese nationalist. Mm. He supports the Palestinians, he supports the Americans, he supports, I think, every side of the story, ends up killing himself. Of course. So the mm-hmm. suicide of that individual, I think, is also part of the story, meaning that complicated person, to me, is not a bad person. It's somebody trying to find his way. And AUB, if you go back in time, this could be just an age thing. Nadim, I think you're 20 years older than me, or maybe a little more. You're in your late 60s. I thought you were not going to bring this up. <laughs> you're in your 40s, Hisham, you're in your 40s. I'm early 20s. Early 20s, <laughs> well, that makes sense, yeah. So I'm the oldest one on stage. <laughs> that the Hamra, I think Nadim refers to something I don't know. I'm too young to have known it. Yeah. But my mm-hmm. reading of it, my understanding of it, is that AUB produced more good than bad. And I don't think Ross Beirut... Oh, I agree with that, of course. Yeah, So, course. and you can think of all the other people that graduated from AUB that are shining stars. So I, I don't know if... I'm not trying to polarize or divide. It's more like where you see... And you said it up front, ethnic cleansing. That's your childhood. So that, to me, it, it's that, actually... That's Habel Jabal, that I lived as a right. child, correct. But I was thinking more of, let's say, even education or where, yeah. you, went to, where you went to university. Did I get it right that it's at Usyk? Well... Well, uh, I, I did finish... Before leaving to the U.S., I meant. Well, I studied uh, law at... Uh, I finished my doctorate in law yeah. at, at Uzek. Uzek. Okay. But in the meantime, I was studying political science at USG. Mm-hmm. And this is when yeah. I discovered that, you know, I'm, I'm married to law, but I'm in love with political science. So I decided to basically jump ship mm. after finishing the doctorate degree. And then I went to the States. Uh, for the PhD. Oh, so uh, it started so, in Saint Joseph and then finished in the U.S. The, the political science side of my education, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so Castique is just one one place because I also my master's degree in in law was at Sages. I see. You see, okay. so there are a lot of places I studied yeah. in, and then, mm-hmm. but you, you're focusing on on Castique and um, I, I. No, I, I thought you said. I thought maybe I, that was during the war that maybe there was some link to. Asleep. Because no, no, no. Uh, yeah. the war, when the war finished, I was twelve. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I never, I wasn't in, in university during the war. Um, the war ended. I was still not even in high school. And you spent most of your childhood in one place. When you said the ethnic cleansing and well, so I was born in the Shouf in yeah. 1978, yeah. and the Harb al-Jabal happened in 1983. Um, and so in September 1983, uh, Harb al-Jabal was at its height. Yeah. And essentially, this is when the Christians of Halay and 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 the Shuv basically were, were kicked out. Of course, they were not kicked out uh, uh, automatically. They were first first uh, besieged at their Lamar, at least those who, were, who made it to their Lamar. Many did not, unfortunately. And so after 100 uh, days, they, you know, 
they were driven out of the mountain. Were so you driven out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was, it was my family. I was I was a five year old uh, yeah. kid uh, besieged at Der Lamar. And yes, I'm, I apologize. I don't know you as much as I know Nadim. That's fine. Uh, but I've been to both of your homes. Yeah, Nadim, you now live in Beit Miri. Hisham, you live closer to Beirut Hazmi yes. or close to Hazmi. Is that where you grew up as a child? Was it there? No, actually, I grew up in Ain Rumeni, and and that also, that was also a defining experience because Ain Rumeni yes. was a very hot front yeah. uh, during the war. Yeah. Um, so essentially, the first five years uh, of my life during the war were in the Shuf, and then another seven years in Ain Rumeni, and you know that, and then 1990 came and the war yeah. ended. But so yeah, I mean, the, if we're talking about the war years, I spent them between uh, the Shuf and the very first early years, and then Ain Rumeni. Thank you for letting me ask this because it, I don't know these things. Yeah, that's fine. And I wanted to go down this road as much as I could. Before we get mm. to the next topic, Nadim, you wanted to say. No. Yeah, I wanted to, I, I wanted to say wanted that. to say view at some point. To, to the distinction is. is the, <laughs> the distinction is, is uh, best described in an essay by Albert Harani where he describes the. Uh, the ideology of the mountain versus the ideology of the city. So, so the city, Beirut, is is a completely different environment and mm. completely different ideology than 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 the rest of Lebanon and especially than 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 the mountains, because Beirut became a hub for the whole region from the early 19th century uh, on. Onwards, and it kept on attracting people from the region uh, until the the seventies, basically. So, whereas the mountain has its own defined uh, identity, and its sphere of operation is is much narrower than than Beirut. Before we continue, may I uh, object about? Uh, um, <laughs> the romanticization of the Ottoman world that I see in Nadim's... Uh, I thought you were going to pass. Very quickly, very yeah. quickly, because w when you are romanticizing the Ottoman city, you seem to be forgetting that the Ottoman Empire was an Islamic caliphate. Yeah. And under that Islamic caliphate, uh, like I would say most Muslim-dominated societies, caliphate or not, it was a hierarchical society yes. in which one people were, a group of people were on, on top. Uh, just because they, you know, they, they had the privilege of being born in a specific sectarian denomination. Yes. And others were, well, not on top, simply because they were not born into that specific denomination. Yes. There's nothing romantic about... Uh, no, but there is that, something... Uh, I, would there's call, something... I, would call this, I would call this a religious racism. No, there's uh, something uh, relevant There's to... nothing romantic uh, uh, about that. <laughs> <laughs> at all. And, and also, I mean, talking about the Ottoman city, I mean, the Ottoman city were the place where... Uh, <laughs> the Ottoman city were the place where, for instance, uh, Ar Armenian Turks were slaughtered, uh, where uh, Christians in Damascus were slaughtered in 1860, yeah. where Christians in Aleppo were slaughtered in 1850. So there's nothing... Jeddah, uh, yeah, yeah, there's nothing romantic about, you know... The, the no, but being, you're, you're being calling non, it romantic. non-Muslim living in a Muslim <laughs> caliphate. Okay. So I, ju I just want to say, there's nothing romantic listen, listen, about that. Listen, and I think listen. you're, white, you're whitewashing what was essentially something that mm. is very problematic and continues to be problematic to this day. Let me interrupt. Yeah. No, but... Uh, wait, 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 wait. It's not... It's not uh, You'll the, get your one minute rebuttal let me interrupt it's not a rebuttal I'm, i agree with him on on many things and i'm even more extreme than he is but <laughs> i don't think this is extreme but, but, this but it's is a just, question yeah. it's a question of interpretation yeah, okay could i let you interpret a little later 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. Okay, because I think that would... I, let me let me start over. You'll yeah. get a chance to talk, I promise. I don't know, because you. I, I'll let you right. talk, but I want to say something. What's happening right now happened in this field, I think in April. I did an episode with Nadim at Alia's. And Hisham, I think you watched parts of that episode and you wanted to comment. Mm. This is, I think, April, maybe, maybe March? Yeah, maybe. April, March. Yeah. Nadim and I were walking in this field by chance. And I mentioned to Nadim, I said, Nadim, was good, we were, here. we're walking somewhere in this field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, Nadim, would you be up to doing this? And we agreed back then to wait a bit because you had just been on the podcast. Right. So then I invited you to MTV podcast. So the reason we're doing this in Iris domain, which should be explained, is because this was happening on my phone <laughs> while walking in Iris domain. <laughs> and I couldn't control it. I'm like, Nadim, we have to do this in person. Because you were calling him at the same time. I think yeah. you were messaging. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember. It was maybe the day the after. Day. I remember, yeah. yeah. So that's why we're doing it here. Yeah. But I'll let you, if you wanted to say something. No, I just want to say that, you know, they, they, they federalists in Lebanon. You're going too far. They've discovered. Not yet. Not they've yet. discovered one principle called that, that the, the religion of the people have to be the same as the, ru the ruler. Uh, they, they, uh, uh, I mean, it's it's. I saw it in all the federal federalist documents in in, in Lebanon. I don't know if you in, in yours you, you mentioned, wait, it. but if, if that was if end. that was the case, we would all be Sunni Muslims. Alhamdulillah, and there would be no problem. Let's leave that. No, to the some, end. somebody needed to pay the jizya, so we couldn't have become financially. It wasn't feasible, but we can go to this more later on. Yeah, let's say federalism to win. Uh, eh. Some more wine. <laughs> some more wine. <laughs> I wanted the childhood because I wanted to know how you saw the world changing. You're right, Nadim. In 40 years, everything has changed. And Hisham, we're closer to age. You're two or three years maybe older than me. Mm. I have the same memories of conflict, but my direct experience with it is not the way you, you saw it up front. And the forced exile, and I think it's good that you're actually using words that people here tend to be shy, they tend to shy away from. This is a form of ethnic cleansing. So I owe you that thanks to making that an emphasis when you speak, not just an alternative digital media, you go on TV, you're very confident and pointing at violence that happens. So I thank you for that. And you bring credibility when you say it too. Mm. Even I think it was on MTV two weeks ago or last week, the gentleman sitting next to you, I think his name was Albert, right? His name escapes me now. No, the Alfred. Alfred, sorry, yeah. Alfred, yes. Uh, he even said the word Canton. Hmm. And I don't know who thanked him, maybe Marcel thanked him, for removing the stigma and emotions around technical words. Hmm. So I owe you credit for that. You've made federalism, you and others, have made it less of a toxic word because it should have never been toxic. So I thank you for that. Hmm. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for thanking me. <laughs> Even then. <laughs> no, no, please go ahead. Continue, please. Yeah. So, understanding of how the Civil War shaped Lebanon. Yeah. I think there's some common agreement here. Lebanese were not born to kill each other. Just because there's Christians, Muslims, Druze, Jews living together, that in their DNA they're ready to kill. Mm. Obviously, that's not true. That's not the full history of the country anyway. But I will speculate. And maybe I'll start with you, Hisham. 1975, 
and the build-up to that, meaning the PLO and Fatah's arrival in Lebanon, makes really the story that perhaps you're right, Nadim and I do romanticize to a degree about that Ras Beirut that we both that we both love. Maybe it dies because there's problems that are not. No one can control the outcome of a militia basing itself in Lebanon and the worst instincts emerge. Is that how you see the civil war? Uh, I see 1975. Sorry, I'll just move. Yeah. Okay. I see 1975 as yet another occasion uh, in which uh, supranational identities um, destroyed Lebanon made the possibility of the Lebanese state to defend itself disappear. Because in 1975, the Lebanese state was not defeated militarily. Uh, mm. In 1969, certainly, the Lebanese state was not defeated militarily. The Lebanese army would have been capable, strictly speaking, from a military perspective, mm. to handle the Palestinians. Um, the problem was that uh, uh, um, Islam in Lebanon, uh, Muslims in, in, in Lebanon in general, uh, sided with the Palestinian to, to an extent that uh, you could not send the army because if you send the army, then the army would split. The Lebanese prime minister uh, boycotted Shar uh, Halou for seven. Boycotted the Lebanese state without this, without uh, yeah. uh, presenting his resignation. Yeah. Um, and and uh, that led to the paralysis of the Lebanese state, which also implied the paralysis of the Lebanese army. And uh, the moment the state became paralyzed, the moment the army became paralyzed, uh, Christians started arm automatically. This is where you have the Kata'ib, uh, the Ahrar beginning to arm themselves. Mm. And I've read in 1973, actually, after the Melkarta Agreement, that Slamin Frangie calls Pierre Jmail and Camille Chamon to, to Babda and tells them, look, there's nothing I can do for you anymore. Yeah. Uh, the, they do not consider the army to exist anymore. Yeah. If you want to face the Palestinian, you have to face them. Uh, on your own. So, I mean, essentially it was uh, 1975, above anything else for me, is yet another occasion in which supra-Lebanese identity, supranational identity, essentially destroyed, paralyzed uh, uh, the Lebanese state, uh, which basically led to a part of the population saying, fine, if the army is not going to do the job, we're going to do the job for the army. And this is where, you're, you you know, hell breaks loose. Yeah. So that's 1975. The problem is, this problem of supranational identity, supranational loyalty is still very much alive today. I mean, when Hassan Nasrallah tells you, I am a, a soldier in the uh, army of uh, Al-Wali al-Faqih. When Najib Miqati tells you that Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is not just my religious uh, uh, reference, it's mm. also my, 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 you know, my political reference. Mm. Uh, it basically means... Uh, 50 years later, we're still facing the same dilemma, the same problem. And that, that problem is the supra-loyal, uh, the supranational loyalties of a sector of the population. I'm not going to call that sector the Druze because they're not the Druze. They have a very local identity. I'm not going to call that sector the Maronites because there's not the Maronites or the Christians. Because people in Mount Lebanon, Druze or, or, or Christians, have a very local identity. The problem remains the same. The problem remains since the foundation of Lebanon. The uh, supranational 
identities of Sunnis and of, of Shia. Now, uh, before I, 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 I end, I want to say something. When I say that, I'm not, I'm not attacking anyone. I mean, um, for hundreds of years, you have uh, uh, the world of Islam living you know, under the Ottomans uh, or, or before, living in caliphates, living in, in, in one caliphate after the other, living in some kind of organic unity. Mm. And, and that was a problem for the Christians because there was a mean. That wasn't a problem for the Sunnis. And so at some point, the Ottoman Empire collapses. The Christians are able, with the help of France, to impose on uh, um, Muslims an, an identity or, uh, forgive me, a country that they never wanted. Uh, so I'm not blaming them for having uh, uh, supranational identities. I am saying, however, that these supranational identities at every single turning point is preventing the Lebanese state from acting as a state because it's, so, it's, so to speak, giving the Lebanese state on a, a plate of silver to its enemies, whether they be uh, the PLO at some point or whether they be uh, the Iranian regime at, uh, at, at this point. So I'll, I'll ask you, Nadim, in a bit, but just to, if I could use that marker and then try to fast forward until today yeah. without getting too detailed, just the, the narrative yeah. that with or without the, with or without the PLO and Lebanon, yeah. this remains an existential issue regardless. Oh, absolutely. So the civil mm. war outbreak is not really what tore Lebanon apart. It's supranational identities that are not able to coexist. Fundamentally, yes. The, okay. the PLO happened to be the trigger in 1975. Yeah. Uh, Nasser, to a certain extent, was a trigger in the, in the, in the, in the yeah. 1950s. Yeah. Currently, it's the Iranian regime. And then my worry, what if this keeps going on and on and on and on? I mean, who would have... We are in the mountain. Okay. Who would have thought in 1840... The, I go back to 1840 because it's the first time we had a kind of civil war. Who would have thought in 1840 that 200 years later, we're close to... 200 years later after 1840, right? Who would have thought 200 years later there would still be civil wars in, in, in Lebanon or, or ethnic conflict? Well, at this point, I'm wondering, what if we keep saying what we're saying and romanticizing what should not be romanticized? And in effect, that would lead to 100 years from now, our great-grandchildren would be slaughtering one another because we cannot understand what's really going on. So this is why I'm, 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 I'm the great, although in my personal life, I love romance, but in politics, in <laughs> politics, I'm the great anti-romanticization. I, yeah. I am for cynicism, actually. I am for that. I am for realism. And I understand that nobody likes a realist uh, because people want to hear something that the realists do not say it. Because the, the, the history from a realist perspective is very gloomy. I mean, history is marked by, you know, violence and, and evil and... and um, but it is what it is. And the realist comes and tell you, well, it is what it is. And okay, maybe we can do something about it. Maybe not. But certainly we should not be, again, romanticizing what should not be romanticized. I, I will and, not romanticize. Yeah. No, no, I'm not accusing you. No, of no, no. no. Yeah. I, I will not romanticize the Christian decline of Lebanon. Yeah. That is not, that's not deserving of any romance. So that section will get its due. Yeah. And I promise I won't. That's something that we started at MTV and we can pick up from that sure. here. So there's no romance in a community that doesn't feel politically or in numbers at home right now. That's for sure. I guess, and, I guess yeah. what, I, what I'm trying to say, forgive me, I, I don't plan to interrupt you. I guess what, what I mean by romanticization is when people get caught so much in what they want to see happening that they seem to forget what is actually happening. It's replacing, so to speak, empirical reality with ideological a priori. This is what that's, I argue. That's I actually a perfect description of me. Because, because I don't give up on what I want to be happening. Uh, 
Like uh, I don't describe, I don't see the the the. I mean, I don't want to get into in, historical interpretation. It'll take six, sixteen hours. All right. But in a nutshell, you see the Christians as a victim, as the victims, and they are the victims today. And you need. Oh fuck! What the hell was that? That was that was not part of the conversation. No, you can. That, that was a bleep. That, that was, was a locus. No, was it? Yeah. No, I think it was a uh, no. That was bat. A bat. No, not bat. A bat. Yes. You was know, that, it's, that was a bat? it's attracted to long hair. That's let, let me. No, so let, yeah. let, let me. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, uh, and and you want to protect one victim, and I see everybody as victims, and I want a future where everybody can can live. So, for example, Hezbollah is indisputably. We're, we're going too far. The, we're going to go there later. I, I, let, let me take right. it back to the understanding of the civil war. So Hisham doesn't talk about 1975 as the trigger per se. Mm -hmm. It's supranational identity. No, I talk about as a trigger for something deeper. That, that's what I yeah, meant, sorry. Yeah. The, the depth of it is not the PLO bringing out the worst in us. It's something deeper. And he yeah. just said it. Right, do you I see mean, George Habash and, and Wadi Haddad and Shafil Hout were students of my father at AUB. And I know them. And and when the civil war started, they sent us people to protect us in Ras Beirut. And, so I'd, I'd, uh, and they're not Muslim. <laughs> that's, that's one thing. Uh, and they, and do, they do you see the depth beyond 1975? They're also not Lebanese. George they're Lebanese. not Lebanese. Well, I mean, how many? So, yeah. They're, they're, they're not Lebanese. They're, they're, they're from, they're, they're, for me, they are Lebanese. Because, because for me, being Lebanese is the attraction of all these people from, but can I take Ashrafiye was not Lebanese before 1860. You know, Nadim, just the, the trigger, the way we talked about it, and the depth for what Hisham describes as a much deeper issue. Do you look at the structural problems of Lebanon in a similar way of supranational identity, or is it strictly a security problem like the PLO? Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think nationalism is a bit overrated, and uh, you know this famous, this famous uh, phrase that people like quoting that uh, two negations do not make a nation of Jornaash. Uh, mm. I don't see the problem with the two negations. I see the problem with the, with the nation. On, on, uh, we are not a nation state. We are the remnant of an empire. An empire uh, rules over several nations and, and they coexist in the cities of the empire Sometimes they kill each other. Sometimes there is tension. They, they all have their external uh, 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 connections, and uh, they, they are affected by global by global uh, uh, conflicts, if, if you like. So we we are we are a bit we are a bit like that. I wouldn't like to live in a nationalist state where if the Sunnis of Lebanon, if as he describes them have sympathy with Abdel Nasser, then we have to lock them up in jail and, and prevent them from publishing or prevent them from... Is that what I said? No, but 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 if they have... How do you prevent... No, you said that the Sunnis had um, extra territorial... Uh, loyalties. Yeah. Okay. We, it's, not, it's not an insult. I'm it's just, not an uh, insult. I think yeah. that's true. So, so basically, we, we we were the only free zone in the whole region, and in 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 those days, since we were the only free area in in the whole in the sure, whole region. You're right. So, 
the only place where regional ideas surfaced was here, and the only place where they clashed was here. So nationalism and Islamism and uh, isolationism and all these isms, uh, communism and all, clashed in Lebanon first, and then they spread in, 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 in the region. Not because they were only Lebanese, because they were regional to, to start with. So it's either you want a free society where people can clash with freely, or or you want a place where which has one where, where which is homogeneous, Allah, where everybody is the same and they don't have and and then they kill each other for for stupider reasons like like the Maronites did and the Shias did and the Sunnis did and the Druze did. When, Aziz, when they were in cantons. You're missing the point. I'm, I'm telling you, when a state faces an existential dilemma, it should be able to defend itself, and that's only its natural right. Unless there's no common identity bounding together the people living in that state within a certain narrative that everybody accepts, and then what you have is a civil war and the breakdown yeah. of the state. That's no, what but I'm that, saying. That's I'm not where, saying everybody has to have that, the same that's where, idea. I mean, no. th- that's that's where I feel... Uh, you are, um, uh, you, you guys. I mean, you are insisting right. on, on on putting the Federalist in where we call ourselves as realists. We're just looking at how society is moving and trying to understand what could be done about it. You absolutely have to depict us as you know the ultra Maron, the ultra you know right wing Maronites who want to punish the Sunnis just because they like Nasser. I don't want to punish anyone because they like Nasser. No, however, I do, I do. however, however. However, I do and not. And they do. They have revived. I do, I do not. I refuse yeah. to break diplomatic relations with France and Great Britain, who were traditionally friends of Lebanon, for yeah. the sake of Abdel Nasser or for the sake of Egypt. And Absolutely. that was asked of us at the time. And I, I, I reject that. I resent that very deeply. Can I, That's can very I different from, you know, denying any Sunni anywhere uh, the right to like Abdel Nasser. These are very, very different things. Let me interrupt here. So I want to I, I get into how communal anxiety really sharpens during the 1980s yeah. and this in the Syrian era. But th- there's one section I should have brought up. Just very quickly, may I ask you how you see Fouad Shheb's legacy? Oh. And in a, in a, not in a complicated way, more yeah. in a, is it net positive, net negative, how you see him and his role in state building? I think one of the biggest uh, misunderstandings in Lebanese history pertain to Fouad Shheb. Fachab, as a commander of the army in 1958, uh, did pretty much nothing to stop the civil war, although he should have intervened to prevent uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser from sending weapons to Beirut, because he, they did. And uh, he did that because that was the only way for him to become president. Mm. So this is how he became president, by allowing the, the civil war to go on and on. And then uh, Fachab, who wanted to become president again later in the 19. 60s via the deuxième bureau al maktab uh, gave too much leeway to the palestinians because he understood at the time that the christians were not going to vote for him uh, but he wanted you know somebody to vote him back to office and the way to do that was by getting the vote of the muslim mps so the maktab uh, uh, grew very very uh, weak on the palestinians and by the way that's not me who said that i'm almost i'm almost quoting literally the memoirs of Samuel Khatib. Samuel Khatib, uh, we, all, we all, I believe, know who Samuel Khatib was. He was one of the most influential Shahabi officers. Mm-hmm. And he said, our strategy to bring Fouad Shahab back 
uh, to power was basically by when once we understood uh, that the Christians were going all the way with uh, the halif at the time halif meaning uh, Pierre Jmayel, uh, Kamil Shamoun and and Rimo Uddi, uh, he he said we understood that the only way for a Shihabist restoration, basically, by, by getting the Muslim vote. And to get the Muslim vote, you had to go mm. lenient on the Palestinians, which is what we did. So there's, I, I don't find anything uh, good about you know, how Fahad Shahab got to power in, in the first place, and uh, and certainly nothing good about how he tried to came, come back to power. Uh, so, in so the the for, me, to, and for me, the, the hero of Lebanon at the time, and the 50s was Kamil Shamoun, not Fahad Shahab. But we can mm. go more into oh, that if you but, want. So the six years of Fahad Shahab's presidency to you does not leave a an important footprint it's more just uh trying to stay in power and uh negotiating endlessly with no no i'm i'm, I'm not telling you uh i dislike shahab i dislike certainly as i told you i dislike how he uh came to power in the first place yeah. and how he tried to come back to power that being said while he was in power Fahad Shahab certainly was not a fromagist he did not steal from the states yeah. he was an honest man so that's good. Fahad Shahab understood uh, the importance of having a kind of socioeconomic program mm-hmm. um, um, to so lift up uh, real and, national and, uh, infrastructure. Projects. Yeah, 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 and and and, and that's also good. Yeah. Uh, um, Fahad Shahab uh, built lots of state institutions that you know were were needed. So I, I'm there's I'm, I'm nuanced mm-hmm. about Fahad Shahab. Yeah. I don't I don't think of him as you know the the. the like the god of Lebanese nationalism or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I don't think he, I, I think he was a politician. He wanted power mm. and his way to power and his planned way to go back to power was very problematic. Uh, Fouad Shahab, for instance, did nothing about the slaughtering of Naim Ghabghab. That was the, the Shouf MP who was killed by the Jumblatis. And um, he, he was killed. I mean, he was basically people stamped on him to, die, to death uh, and nothing happened. Fouad Shahab allowed, and I think that's national treason. You know, there were officers in the army who in 1958 fought along the side of the people who were fighting with Abdel Nasser. And when the war stopped, he allowed them back into, into, into the army. So that's, the, that's an officer in the Lebanese army fighting against the state. And then when the war stops, he's allowed back into the into the army. I mean, that's that, that's insane in, in my mind. Uh, so that so there's a lot of negative sides to Shahabism. Uh, certainly, I don't I I don't like uh, the deuxième bureau, bureau role in in Lebanese politics. Certainly, uh, he 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 went too far in leaning toward Abdel Nasser. Um, so I mean, there's more negative side than positive side, but there was some pos- some some positive sides as well. Nadim. Could you comment as much as you can on Fudge Hebs, whether it's a positive or negative legacy? No. Okay, I I I I don't want to go into historical revisionism. I I'm not a fan of Shahab myself. I I see him as a global as part of a global phenomenon. You know, uh, military uh, rule, m- military rule from Latin America to Pakistan to the to Abdel Nasser to uh, Iraq, Syria. Sudan, Numeri, you know, and and then uh, um, yes, and and Qadhafi, you know, so that, that was a fashion in the sixties. Mm. That's it. That's all I see. And the Americans favored military strongman, uh, strongman 
because they thought that democracy needs institutions and institu- and uh, the army is an institution builder. Mm. That, that's all I, 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 I see. So I, that's I, interesting. I see. A common disliking of Fuad Shahab, maybe not for no, the same I mean, reasons. Uh, no, yeah. uh, no I, I'm not disliking Fuad Shahab. I'm saying that I'm not part of this hagiography of Fuad Shahab, yeah. of the, the, because I agree with all the, the, I mean, the Deuxième Bureau yeah. and, and his dislike of politics. Yeah. Is is not very democratic. In a, the reason I wanted to briefly touch on him is because that's the one name I think that is shared among civil society today, and the more right leaning out, le- out of ignorance, out of ignorance. Yeah, I agree uh, with that. Uh, I agree with see, that. Let's uh, give a round of applause. <laughs> let, let, let me summarize. <laughs> the only man that tried gets a dual <laughs> flagellation. Let, let me summarize. <laughs> the one guy who tried. Uh, they used to call him Muhammad Shab. Even that, you know, it's uh, uh, he's dead. Let, 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 I like Fletch. <laughs> I'm the only person. Uh, let me rescue you again. Thanks, Nadine. Yeah, yeah, let, let me let, <laughs> let me summarize this whole historical revisionism d- d- debate. There are two sides. One side says that Lebanese history sucks and it's all conflicts and and we all suffered and we should stop it and and live separately, Maroonistan and all this other thing. <laughs> enough is enough is enough. I see it in the exact opposite way. I see it that as as Hisham said, Lebanon was set up by the Maronites at a time when half the Maronites didn't want it. The Sunnis didn't want it, the Greek Orthodox didn't want it, the Druze didn't want it, and the Shias didn't want it. If you fast forward a hundred years later, this has gone. They all want it now. There's, there, there, through different crises, after every crisis, the acceptance of Lebanon grows. Uh, so, 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 so every crisis improves the cohesiveness. And the proof is, look at the Sunnis now, they're 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 revising uh, the period of the PLO and Abdel Nasser and all that, and they're more nationalist, Lebanese nationalist than 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 me at least. So we'll touch on identity. So, so, so we'll just, identity to, just to say that that it is a very successful uh, uh, experiment that has moved positively over the last hundred years, rather than the description that it was a disaster from the start and it's moved. And and they're all, everybody's victims. And, uh, and, and, and because we are now in a situation which is unacceptable for everybody. So let's let's leave that to the end. Uh, I want to get into... I disagree pretty much with every word you said. That's, 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 that's fine. Okay, go ahead. That's why we're here. Yeah, go ahead, Ronnie. No, actually, the reason why we're here yeah. is because the three of us don't have a security answer to Hezbollah. So what we're doing is offering narrative and maybe some debate-like tradition in the light. If you remember Michel Foucault and Chomsky and Derrida and that kind of stuff, you're the intellectuals of Lebanon today. Oh. So I think we're leaving behind a record for people to learn from. I so, wish you had said Huntington, Hazem Sari, Fouad Ajami, not Chomsky, and because I dislike the guy, but 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 granted, yeah, the other Your intention was good. No, Go no, maybe he means I'm Chomsky and you are Hazem Sari. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like, Edward yeah. Said and Fouad Ajami were friends before they debated. Yes. <laughs> maybe you'll be friends after. <laughs> All right, let's go back to the 1980s. And Hisham, I think this relates to us sure. in a way. Uh, 
my and I'll say it from since I pushed you to talk about your childhood, let me yeah. talk about mine. Please. Uh, memories of Tripoli in the north, memories of the Syrian army, memories of cursing Syrian soldiers, mm, memories. <laughs> yes. If I say that over and over, will you keep? <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> Every sentence, curse the Syrian army. Mm. Uh, memories of Arafat's return and then exile. Yeah. Memories In, of to Tripoli. To Tripoli. Yeah. Tripoli. Yeah. yeah. And the Syrian arm, the Syrian war against him. Yeah. Memories of fundamentalism. Of course. Memories Tawheed. of yes, Tawheed. Memories of my grandmother getting slapped for not wearing something. That. That's Tripoli of the 80s. Memories of car bombings, car bombings hitting Syrian checkpoints, mm. not all of them successful. People dying for no reason in Tripoli. Also, watching LBC at night with my grandmother because she was really interested in what Samir Jaja had to say. Now, I don't think she liked him, but I think she wanted to listen in because that was the other side. Mm. That's mm -hmm. the Lebanon she didn't see for 15 years, mm. but she could watch it in her living room late at night when there was generator power on like today, neon lights dangling like today. Actually, it feels eerily familiar. We're still watching Samir Jaja late at night <laughs> with neon lights and generator power, except he looks much older. And, and he makes actually more sense today. But anyway, Samir Jaja is in the background. War is in the background. We cannot go really until maybe Al-Hari. That's as far as you can go. That's risking it already. Mm. So you can't go south from Tripoli. Madfoun. Sorry? Madfoun, that was the, Madfoun the iconic. Madfoun was the uh, end, yeah, really. Yeah. Madfoun's further down, though. Al-Hari yeah. is already problematic. Enfi itself, you, wouldn't, there, you couldn't go comfortably around. Mm. That's my memory of Tripoli. And my memory of the 90s, was all about Syria and not mentioning Syria in public. Don't talk about Assad. Don't look at Hafiz. Don't point at him. Uh, don't interact with Syrian checkpoints. Everything that you really, I mean, the Syrian occupation as a child and trying to navigate around it, and we moved to Beirut, mm -hmm. where it's very visible. I still think of that stretch of time as defined by Syrian intervention and everything that could have gone right went wrong. And that includes, and I'll, I'm taking it here for a reason, that includes what should have been a true understanding of communal anxiety and the lack of real power sharing so that the civil war or anything like that would happen again. Instead, we had Hafiz al-Assad and his friends. His nominal enemies, became his enemies later. But at first there was no direct challenge to him on the on the Lebanese side, with the exception of Samir Jaja, who goes to jail. Michel Aoun is sent to France. Other than those two figures, it's defined by acceptance of Hafiz. And key among those players is Rafi Hariri. But I still think of Syria's rule as the cause, not one of this would have happened anyway. That's because of what? The lack of what we're talking about right now, which is how to rectify and never let something like the 1970s happen again. I think we still live in that shadow. 
I think that's the that's the shadow that lingers five decades later is why Lebanon tore itself apart for all the reasons we can talk about, whether it's the depth to the conversation you offered earlier, the security that is beyond state control. I think the Syrian years made it impossible to truly reform. And that includes communal harmony and in essence, Ta'if, which never, never was implemented. So would you emphasize Syria here in those years? When you're young, you're, you're my age, when you're growing up. Yeah, I mean, in the 1990s, uh, I was uh, in university and I was a student militant against the Syrian occupation. Mm. So I, of course, uh, my best friend, Ramzi Irani, uh, was mm. caught and and killed uh, during that time. We don't know by whom, but we know you know it was done for political reasons. So it could be uh, the 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 Syrian Mukhabarat, it could be people working for the Syrian Mukhabarat, somebody yeah. in that camp. Yeah. So uh, uh, suffice it to say that I have little sympathy for uh, for uh, the Assad regime and and its goons in Lebanon. But uh, um, but to say that our problems, I, I want to make sure I got you. Our problems in Lebanon, you're saying. Uh, were the result of, of Syrian occupation. I would say the Syrian occupation was the result of our problems in Lebanon. Okay, that's what I was trying to get so at. So I, yeah. I would, you know, the direction of causality, I would, you know, I would change it. Um, so Ta'if, yeah. lack of implementation has less to do with Syria's role in Lebanon and more to do with the inverse of that, is, which is what brought Syria into Lebanon. Is that, I'm trying to... Ex- um, Azizi, what brought Syria into <laughs> Lebanon? What what brought the Palestinians into Lebanon? What brought is the fact that the Lebanese are not one people. The Lebanese are multiple peoples live sharing a narrow land, basically. And what is an occupation for one group of people is actually a savior for another group of people and vice versa. Uh, um, the Maronites or the Christians like to think of themselves as sovereignists, right? I mean, when the French was the occupying power, they were not so sovereignist. Uh, when Bashir became president of the Republic in the conditions that we all know, they were not, yeah, they, you know, they, they didn't complain to, to the best of my knowledge. Um, or when the Syrians fought alongside them. Or when the, the Syrians entered and, and, and they were fighting, they did not complain yeah. either. Yeah. Um, so nobody is a, is a sovereignist pur jus. Uh, mm. It depends on who's the occupier. Um, so the, again, the occupier for one sector of the population is a savior for another sector and, and, and vice versa. That's the fundamental problem. Now, we may dislike uh, one occupier more than, than the other. We may say Hafez al-Assad did more harm uh, to this country than any other regime or occupier that came to this country. And I agree with that. Mm. Uh, th- there are nobody in the world I dislike. There's no regime in the world I dislike more than the Assad Per and Assad Fis regime. Uh, but, but, that, that, that's, but still to say that that's the fundamental problem of Lebanon, for me, academically, would be intellectually dishonest. Not the if, fundamental problem yeah. of Lebanon, more that the fundamental reasons why something like Ta'if simply was dead upon arrival. Uh, the, the fundamental reason why something like Ta'if was dead upon arrival, because you cannot manage uh, a multi-confessional society within the confines of a centralized regime. So I whether so it's, it's Syrians or no Syrians, okay. Ta'if yeah. itself is bad. Now, the presence of the Syrians made it worse 
fair mm. enough. Mm. You know, this is. I mean, the, I, I, I like it when when uh, uh, when communists who are still communists who tell you Stalin was bad and mm. that's the problem. Mm. Stalin was bad, but Marxism sucks in the first place. The fact that you know that the theory was wrong. Mm. I mean, the fact that you had a, a monster. Uh, in power does not mean that the theory was innocent and the monster was just a monster. The theory, the theory could be very bad to begin with, and then you have a monster, and then you you end up with a nightmare. But but that doesn't mean that the theory was was right to begin with. Taif is a bad idea. A centralized mode of government is a bad idea. No neutrality for a country like Lebanon is a bad idea. Now, when you have all that plus the Syrian occupation, then you have the nightmare that we're living. But that's one thing, and saying that Taif could have worked. Uh, had it not been for Hafez al-Assad, I disagree with that. Okay, could I ask the same question to you, Nadim? Am I supposed to disagree with him? You're allowed to agree. No, well, I, I, I disagree. I'll tell you what I disagree with. I think that, I think the whole pro- the problem is, you know, the Palestinians oh. suffered from the Syrian regime, the Lebanese, the Jordanians, the, every, everybody in the re- and most of all the Syrians. Yani, yani, uh, I would consider that a regime like the Assad's, the way it's run through Mukhabarat and through, uh, you know, a, a Stalinist type, type, type regime is a problem that destabilized Lebanon and uh, and all the, and and the rest of the region in in that. So I I wouldn't I, I I wouldn't put the blame on us because we have different opinions. It's natural to have different opinions. We, it's, we, I cannot imagine a country of clones who don't disagree on. But let me emphasize the um, question: Taif's lack of implementation. Taif, taif you, you see, it. I, that's why I don't want to go into revision physics because we want to get to the subject. We haven't got to the subject. The, but but basically, Taif, Taif, there are two parts in, on Taif. There is the internal part, which was the same as the constitutional documents of 1976. And the regional part is the Syrian, the Syrian handing Lebanon over to Syria. Mm-hmm. Is basically the rest of the civil war. Yani the Syrians, the Syrian army, attacked uh, uh, the, sh- the the villages in the north to give itself an excuse to come in, Beit Millet and the Tel Abbas and all that. They used Palestinians, who, uh, Palestinian organizations, who killed more Palestinians than Israel itself. They used uh, they they besieged Zgharta, they besieged Zahle, they besieged Ashrafiyye, they besieged Beirut, they besieged Tripoli. They besieged uh, everywhere, everywhere, bombed it to submission, got rid of the people who who, who uh, would not compromise, and that's how every that's how they conquered the the place, without, and that's how without, they conquered Syria. Do you think with <laughs> they, they conquered Syria during the the, the last uh, ten ten years? They bombed they bombed the city by city. They depopulated cities. They killed. They they assassinated people. They recruited thugs inside. The, Hisham's, Hisham's that's exactly what they did here. Hisham's description of Taif more or less dead upon arrival. No, I disagree. You I disagree. Keep so yeah. why not? Do you think of it as the Syrian occupation preventing it? I think I think the text of Taif is the most brilliant text you can think of so to resolve. Of, it's lack of implementation. Do you put that on the Syrian occupation, or do you put that on what Hisham is saying, really? Which is at the end of the day, no, these, it's it's not. Yeah, I I do I do put it on the on on on, on, the, on it's on the Syrian regime cloning itself in Lebanon through Lebanese so like then, they did in Syria. Perfect. So let me then fast forward a bit. 
And th th this is really laying the foundation to something that we can discuss later, which is the lack of Levantine cosmopolitanism in the region and its decline and the birth pangs of your determined drive, which is a federal Lebanon. That's which what I want to get. Suicide, you mean? <laughs> Everyone's behaving. <laughs> Not now. Not now. Uh, th there's one thing, and Hisham and I have spoken about it. We actually dedicated an episode to it on MTV. And, I heard it. And maybe half of the episode was the ethos of power sharing mm -hmm. and its reform. Hisham has already stated it, that yeah. it didn't work for the reasons he stated. You're blaming it primarily on the Syrian occupation. Something that has nothing to do with the Syrian occupation in itself directly is the Senate. I don't think, and you tell me if you see it differently, yeah. I don't think Hafez al-Assad gave a about the Senate. The Senate in Lebanon? The Senate that it was never installed. Yeah, I don't think we do either. That, exactly. Yeah. So this is why I wanted to ask both of you this. You know, Lies, Lies Mahanna wrote a piece on the Senate and dismissed it completely. So, but let me, let me mention it briefly. We don't yeah. need to get deep into the Senate. We know what it's supposed to do, and it didn't happen. We know it's a sectarian hall of power, alongside what's supposed to be a merit-based parliament. It never happened. It doesn't work. Eh? Why do you think it didn't happen? Would you blame the Syrians? Listen, let's not go into details. No, Let me I give wanted, you the... No, no, I need to go into details on this, because that, okay. I think, the lack... We are talking about a treaty. A treaty works initially because people sit down to make a treaty. They have goodwill. <clears throat> so whatever they write is irrelevant. They're going to come out with an agreement. When the treaty ceases working, what's inside the treaty is also irrelevant because you, you, we will argue about the interpretation of every clause forever. But the, so the, the treaty of decentralization and the Senate never happened. Yeah. I can't think of a direct link between Syrian occupying forces and the lack of that. I, I can think of many direct links, and, I, <clears throat> and you can point to individuals who were planted in parliament, in institutions, in, in, in uh, the army. We, we developed an army of 60 to 70,000 people in, in, in Lebanon. On a, on a, we became like Syria. It, it was cloning Syrian institutions and, and other. We, we don't need more than 10,000 so, uh, so it's down to individuals. So we were, being, we, were being, we were being cloned into a, 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 uh, to becoming like uh, the neo-Bathists. Uh, so then, then it's not a question about Lebanese not wanting it. It's a question about individuals that didn't do it. I, I, I'm not seeing Syria's rule here. In preventing it from happening, but you're saying that it's bad actors working alongside the Syrian. I, I don't think people meant it when they, you know. I think the biggest lie in in Lebanon started in 1926. Here, I agree with him, which is that we're going to become secular, secular. We're, that this is temporary and temporary measures until we become secular. We never wanted to. We are happy being. Uh, 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 Looking back on the Ottoman period, which if you look if you look at the writings of Michel Shiha and of all his group of people, they they romanticized the the late Ottoman period, the Mutasarifia, where and they and the, the Maronite Church had lobbied for it, uh, 
as a as a um, unit uni- as a unit with a with a uh, uh, council represent where everybody is represented. The Europeans at the time, because of their frame of mind, they wanted to set up, to set three cantons. They, uh, they wanted to have two cantons first, one Druze, one Maronite, and then they thought, well, the Greek Orthodox. Uh, they they wanted three three cantons. The reason I wanted to get into the Senate, we've gone too far back now, is, yeah. is because if I could make this case, and you can tell me if you don't agree. I don't agree. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Everything here. Is, um, the the justification or the the um, the reason something like federalism, I think, speaks to a lot of Lebanese, mm. whether whether or not you're here, there is a growing appetite for some form of communal autonomy. Whether or not you talk about it, it's happening. Whether or not you talk about it, yeah. it's happening. So, that, so, that so, I, so the difference between us is minimal. He thinks it's the solution. I think it's wrong. That's why well, we're let, here. Let's simplify things. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I'm trying. And and the reason and the Wait, reason no, is no, Hezbollah, no. Mahek. Let, so let's, let's cut let's to the go, chase because no. you only have half an hour left. We have a Q and A after. Are <laughs> you <laughs> with permission from Sadmat if he's still here? Yeah. The reasons you today advocate for something like federalism is it fair to suggest that it's because even something like the Senate never happened? In other words, we both lived in the U.S. We know what federalism looks like there, and one of those aspects of it, not the only one, one of it is the Senate there. It seems to work fine for America. Mm. It should, in principle, work here. It didn't. And whether Nadim's suggestion matches yours or not, it's separate, I think. Does that push you to champion federalism more? Not federalism in itself, more communal autonomy, rather than talking about the Senate today. I don't think the Senate would have provided a radical solution for mm-hmm. the problems we are talking about here. I think you're going on a very technical uh, detail. Mm. It's an important technical detail, but it's, it's a technical detail nonetheless. Mm. Uh, I think we're missing, I mean, we're, we're going a bit off track by talking too much about the Senate. I mean, we can talk about the Senate if you, but that's not, but no, I mean, the short answer, no. That's not why I believe. Then I'll uh, stop you there. Okay. Let's go to March 14. I think March 14 is a great idea. Mm. I think it's when communities see eye to eye, they wake up from the civil war. It's political parties that are legitimate, not alternative or civil mm-hmm. society. There are good, honest Lebanese on the streets. They're calling on the Syrians to leave. I think of that as a moment to champion. I think of what you just said as a complete, in my mind, yeah. respectfully, a misrepresentation. You were about to curse. Of course. <laughs> no. What happened? First of all, in March 14th, there were, I, I was there, by the way. So, so that, well, yeah, well, there were very, very few Shia. Uh, there, the bulk of the people who were there were Sunnis, Christians, and 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 uh, Druze. So it's not true that all communities were there. One big community was not there, and eventually the political force that broke the back 
of March 14 came from that uh, community. In fact, not only it came from that community, but in the last elections, may I remind you, that out of 562,000 uh, uh, Shia voters who actually voted, 95% of these people, 95%, I have the numbers, Nadim, 95% yeah. voted for Hezbollah. And so that's one thing. Yeah. Of course, the same community then provided the same force that broke the back of another beautiful moment, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the revolution. October 17. Uh, October 17. Yeah. I was there too. So first of all, it's not it's it's not exact to say the Lebanese communities came together. One big community was not there. That's one. Two, uh, the fact that Samir Raja was in prison and the Lebanese forces were on the streets calling for the Syrians to leave because they knew that as long as the Syrians were there, their Jaja will remain in prison. That does not mean that these people were not acting as Christians with a very defined communal identity mm. uh, just because they happened to basically sit side by side by uh, the Jumblati PPSP. So what happened was not... This is where I, I find myself in a crusade against romant romanticism. 14th of March was that, no, 14th of March, first of all, out of the four big community, one was not there. Second, the people who were there did not cease operating as Christians when they were could Lebanese I, forces or, just, or, or, yeah. or, no, you cannot, or honest. They did not cease to operate as Druze when they were there as supporters of Allegiant Blood. They did not cease operating as Sunnis when they were there, driven by their anger at the loss of Rafiq Hariri. So that doesn't mean that that was a day where communitarism disappeared and then, you know, the, the bad people came later on and they pushed us back to the... Uh, confessional divide line. The confession. What happened in nineteen uh, in 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 two thousand five was that the different communities, uh, three of the four big communities, uh, um, ha had a common enemy, which was the Syrians, and they basically. Uh, so there was a nexus between these communities. That doesn't mean that that day. You, you see what I mean? Before you talk, I'll, I'll just say disappeared. I, uh, okay, so since I wasn't allowed to interject something, okay, I'll do it now, please. Yeah, go. I think you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And the March 14 you experienced is not the March 14 I saw. Maybe we were on the same plaza at the same time, but I think you're looking for something. No, I think... But, uh, no, okay. Fair enough. You didn't let me. Fair enough, fair enough. MTV, you did this all the time. Fair it was enough. very nice to you too. Fair enough. Every Shia I know from March 14 is still with me. And every Hezbollah member that did not show up in March 14, who are now speaking the language of October 17, I think they matter. And they're Shia. Whether or not it's 5% or 95% of the community, there were Shia on the streets of Beirut. The same patriotic party, eight months after March 14, joins Hezbollah. That's not because they're bad Christians. It's not because they're letting go of their community. That's bad politics. Any team that decides to work alongside Hezbollah from 2006 onwards, all of them are damaged goods. And they're damaged, I think you're right. You said the political force that ended March 14. I would say it's more security force. I don't think Hezbollah went through politics. It went through violence. But I don't subscribe to this way of looking at Lebanon. The Shia were not there. No, they were there. Some Maybe Shia were there. A lot of Shia were there. Azizi, why the, what happened a week before? 
March 14th. March 8th. And how many Shia were there I in comparison to how many Shia? Half a million. Half something? a million. Yeah. So that's the that's the large majority of the community. I, I completely you, you can agree. very well you can very well look at a few Christian leftists who supported Can I risk can I uh, rescue support, you? <laughs> Let me finish those. Yeah, then you, you, you can, can No, no, I want to rescue him. You can you can very well look at a few Christian leftists who in the 1960s and the 1970s supported the Palestinian cause and they were ready to go all the way in support of the Palestinian cause. That does not deny the fact that the bulk the bulk of the Christian community at the time yeah. did not support the Palestinian That's cause. Right. Okay. Yeah. Same thing, you can look at somebody I respect a lot, like let's say Lukman Slim, may he rest in peace, uh, who was there in March 14 and, and, and others. And, and they were there and I respect them. And But that does not deny the fact that the large bulk of the Shia community was not there. In fact, it was in the quite opposite direction. That's a fact. See, this is yeah. where this is where I, st- Hisham, so I, I, st- Hisham, I begin my crusade no, 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 no. against changing facts for the sake no, no, of political no, romance. This is not romance versus yeah. facts. Mm-hmm. You're discrediting the Shia that showed up because they're not enough. I'm not discrediting anyone. I'm telling you the bulk of the community was not but there Hisham, because that community has different political but, choices stemming from its own identity. Yes. I'm not discrediting but anyone. Hisham, I'm just Hisham. describing. Yes. You're right. But yes. so what? So what? Ninety, ninety. I feel the lady should, no, no. should join us. No, she's staying there. Hey, dude, no, no. Hey. Trust me, you don't want to. <laughs> we can't see you. Are there people still there? I think you should. Oh, good. Switch. Everyone's still there. But <laughs> worst case scenario, they all leave and we're like, we're, we're like, there's no one at the end. What if? And we and we run out of wine. No, no, there's enough wine. <laughs> there's enough wine. Uh, essentializing communities to me is not the right way of looking at our problems. And I don't think the thousands of Shia that showed up on March 14 or the tens of thousands or more that were there on October 18, 2019, I think of them as Lebanese and deserving of everything we're talking about. Did I say they were not? You're saying, you're saying things that I think, I think essentialize the Christians of Lebanon. If I tell you that 95% of the Shia voters in 2022 voted for Hezbollah and Abel, and I show you with numbers. Yeah. I, am I essentializing or am I just citing numbers? Can I? So, can so I, according to you, numbers do not matter when we're talking no, political analysis. One more thing, numbers. then you can talk. Okay. One more thing. No, you're right. You're right. Something like 75% of the Christians of Lebanon voted for the worst <laughs> president in Lebanese history. Bleep. Am I going <laughs> to blame them for. No, 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 no. I have to get this part down. You want out. You're looking for re- ways to get out. That's what you're doing. You're not listening to me. I'm listening. I've listened to you. I'm listening very carefully. No, no, no. You're this not listening like to me. I'm telling bickering. you. I'm, first of all, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not essentializing anyone. I'm telling you. You discredited March 14 because not enough Shia were there that day. I'm telling you, you your your analysis of Shia politics is, is wrong. I'm telling you that when you have a large chunk of a population choosing over and over and over again one political side you can't just say well i have a couple of friends which can i settle side, this and then you know they do not matter numbers uh, matter ronnie uh, let me let me, uh, say, let, um, me um, let me help balances of power matter correlations of for that's no. basic political analysis yeah. you cannot just forget about that because you don't like that most of the shia identify currently 
with Hezbollah and Harakat Amal. We cannot deny that just because a few of our liberal Shia friends joins us in the streets of 14th, March 14th. And so that's a fact. Now the question is, okay, what do we do about that? Um, can we just continue with uh, a country in which you have different communities with different and radical different political choices. And that I'm, af I'm afraid that that could lead us every another 20 years or 30 years into yet another civil war. Do we say, okay, you know what, if this is what's going to happen, perhaps we should consider, first we should ask ourselves, um, can we continue as a unified, should we continue as a unified country, even if that means another round of civil war every 20 or 30 years? Or if we can't continue as a civil country, should we at least consider uh, changing the political regime so, so this doesn't happen? I think these are legitimate questions to ask. What is not legitimate is basically saying, just because you had in 1943 uh, a bunch of Christians who were Arab nationalists, forgetting about the fact that most Christians were not, just because a bunch of Christians were in the 60s uh, pro-Arafat or pro-Palestinian cause, forgetting about the fact that most Christians were not. That's not, that's wrong political analysis. Everything you said is actually true. I'm not disagreeing with the facts. I'm disagreeing about what to do with them. Nadim. I still think we're beating around the, su the subject, but le let me solve the numbers issue. 97.6%. 97.6% of Syrians voted for Bashar al-Assad six months before the, the revolution. Does this mean that 97.6% of Syrians were pro-Assad and then suddenly they woke up and they're not? No, it means that there is a political party that has hegemony, that has hijacked a, a whole community, and that that community is the first victim, yani the Shia of Lebanon, are the first victims of Hezbollah. They, it's their children who are being indoctrinated when they are kids. It's their, their young men who are being sent to die in Iraq and in Syria and in Yemen. It's, um, I mean, they, they, they are the ones who are, who are the, the first victims of, of, of Hezbollah. You, you're portraying us as the victims, the, the Christians. Look, I'm wearing a noon uh, coffling. Eh? Uh, whereas I see that we are all victims of a fascist organization, criminal fascist organization, that is part of a regional phenomenon that has that is part of a broad Shiite revival that started in the 50s, and if you want to, and that has its worst uh, manifestation uh, here. And uh, we, we're, we're all victims. We have to find a way of getting rid of that mode of life that we are, that we are in because separation will not resolve it. And the, the example I give is, is Gaza. And, and people, and if Hamas is in Gaza and the PLO is in the West Bank with all the international support and all that, does it, does it solve things? No, because there's contagion and you know now you have the whole place is is unsettled i don't think anyone can live uh, th that's why i'm more extremist than you are and you're saying the shias love hezbollah mabruk alayon let's separate and we live we live alone and i think we can't not even <laughs> no, there's no way we can't we, we can and they are the first victims and the biggest victims in this whole thing are the Sunnis, and regionally, and it's Sunnis who don't have leadership in Lebanon, 
Sunni cities that are that were destroyed in Syria, the mo- most of the displaced people and the ethnically cleansed areas in Syria and Iraq are Sunni. And you, we're all victims of a certain mode of politics represented by the the uh, trinity of Bashar al-Assad, Hassan Nasrallah, Iran, and Russia. And Ukraine is suffering the same thing. So I see it as a bigger problem that we all suffer from rather than as me and uh, or, or, or a small small section you know, or, uh, that we can separate and, and, and I and even if we do see, see it like that, we cannot you cannot isolate yourself from such a, a, a bad actor because they will find a way of involving you you. Know, if they start a war with Israel, they, how can you avoid it? I'll leave that to the end because that's exactly where I wanted to wind down the episode with how we see things moving forward. Let me give credit to Hisham. Yeah. Hisham, uh, I think, is very brave and very honest. And he puts forward many straw men that I love to shoot down. So I'm grateful to him for... for, for, for let, let, me, let me, let me uh, actually, a, co- a couple of things you said I think are... Uh, problematic from a comparative perspective. When you say uh, most of the Syrian people voted for uh, Assad. 97.6%. Okay, I, I know that. Um, the difference is uh, the elections in Lebanon, while imperfect, cannot be compared to elections in Syria. We know that elections in Syria are ridiculous. We know that they do not represent the population. But it's simply not true. So this is where your comparison does not stand at all. Uh, it's simply not true that comparison that elections in Lebanon are as dishonest and as unrepresentative as elections in Syria. So while we can disagree that Assad does not represent 96% of the population simply because he got 96% of the vote, we cannot disagree that the Shia duo actually represents a majority of the Shia because they got 95%. Your comparison is very problematic. It's simply not true that uh, Samir Raja is not extremely popular in Sharri. That's not true. In Pshari. It's, yeah, it's simply not true that Walid Jumlat is not extremely popular in the mountains. And Jaja is more popular in Akkar than, he, than, than anybody the, else. The, the point is, your comparison, what you're drawing a comparison between an unperfect election, such as the one going on in Lebanon, and a completely uh, joke of an, of an election, such as the one going on in Syria. Yeah. And from an intellectual perspective, from a, from a, a comparative perspective, that's problematic. Thank so you, this you. is one thing. The other thing that you're, that you're basically suggesting, we are all victims uh, here. Um, um, yes. and well, I mean, it's, it's different because in the sense that um, even if the situation is bad for everyone, uh, we are vulnerable to that situation in a very, very different way. We and, are and doing the best. We are the best. We have, a, we have leadership. We have disagreements. We have... We have uh, we are preserving our own culture. We we are far better off as Christians, if you want, than the Shias who are hijacked by by uh, by Hezbollah. They're not hijacked. They're they voting for for the, no, these they, people. They are not. So the the description. The voting system doesn't allow them to vote anywhere else. They they, well, they were people from the opposition who basically participated in the and no, they got let, let less give, than five percent. Let me give you one so example. So the idea. See. The idea of hijacking for me is 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 problematic. This is where facts do not matter. Okay, K- let, K- let me K- give you let me give you let yeah. me give you one example. Yeah. You and me, 
if we sit for, stand for elections here, you form a list, I form a list, the audience hopefully will be split uh, sort of either towards you or towards me. Right? One of us will win. Mm. And there will be a small minority in the middle who will who will swing mm. the, the vote. But if you and I are forced, forced, like Aman and Hezbollah are forced, to form one single list, nobody has has uh, then 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 we have total hegemony. Nobody can stand against us. And you put a donkey on the, on our list, he will he will win because we have. We, we represent the two sides that are forced to stand together. One by one has been forced to stand with the other through, through a massacre that lasted three years in uh, not far from here in Klimat Tufah and in uh, uh, and and uh, through assassinate the assassinated the first assassinations were of Shia of the Shia leadership of Amal. And the the communist Shia leadership and the nationalist Shia leadership and the and no, and no that's that's fact too. You have a criminal organization that has achieved hegemony over a community through that kind of behavior, through assassinations, through wars, through etc. Et and then used that monopoly to recruit feeble-minded Christians on one side. To, to join them, who joined them because for political pur purposes. So the That's Christians who joined them were feeble-minded, but the yes, but the, the, the who, joined, who joined, joined them were just victims. Yes, they were also victims. That, okay. Okay. Wow. Quite okay. interesting. <laughs> Let me steer it back. Do, do you see so, what just what you just did? Because you're Christian and you feel very much your Christian identity. When you're talking about the Christians, they are feeble-minded because they joined because a few of them joined Hezbollah. But we're talking about the tens of thousands of Shia who are voting for Hezbollah. They're not feeble-minded. They're just victims. Does that make sense to you? No, I'm being partisan. I'm anti. You're being politically correct. I'm being partisan. I'm being partisan. Let me steer it back to the. Let me steer it back, if that's possible, please, to two things. First. Uh, and I, I'll try to, I'll try to segue from the numbers thing to the the intellectual curiosity for federalism, because I think that's an appealing uh, chapter. The yeah. intellectual uh, merits behind it. Um, I guess there is a difference in not, uh, not in numbers. Numbers are real. That's true. I think it's sometimes even more than ninety five percent end up voting for those parties. I think it's more that, and maybe I'm wrong. I guess I could be wrong here. I still sympathize with those voters, and I still think of them as legitimately Lebanese too. I think that's where the five percent, the ninety-five percent. Oh, okay, yeah. I still think of them as part of this country, even when they're voting for one of the most corrupt parties in the country, and a violent killing machine. I can't think of Lebanon without them, and the reasons for why they're voting for those parties. I think at the end of the day. It's closer to what Nadim was saying, not not fully though. It's more in, I don't blame them. I don't blame them, and I think Hezbollah in particular has destroyed this country in every way possible, including leaving no other options. The Memphid lists are meaningless. The Muatinun, uh, that long list, long name for a list, a long list too. <laughs> I don't think is going to ever really resonate anyway but that wasn't the viable alternative regardless but it was a very healthy one 
Let, let, let's yeah. fast forward to the appeal to federalism. Mm. I have sympathies towards federalism. I don't know where the misunderstanding come from. came from. I lived my, my most productive years in a federal country, the U.S. I mean, my heart wasn't there always. But I think that system works. And it clearly works for the U.S. It could work for Lebanon, too. So there's no... It's an open-minded intellectual exercise here. Where does your curiosity from federalism come from? Is it going back to those early years? No, I mean, uh, that's a good question. I'll tell you academically, as a political scientist, uh, it's, sim it's simply wrong uh, to govern uh, a multi-confessional society mm. within a centralized system of governance. Mm. Um, think about the history book i mean every country is supposed to have a history book no. but the fact but the fact is um when you have different communities you also have different interpretations of history so i mean if you have one single history book that you have to impose on everyone how can you do that for instance hassan nasrallah will you write about him that he's like the hero who liberated the south or will you write about him that he's an iranian agent uh he's he's both things to different people Uh, so it's, it's quite wrong to, I would say academically, to imagine that you can run a country that is multi-sectarian, where you have multiple sectarian identities operating within it mm. from, um, uh, from uh, within the confines of a centralized system mm. of government. And also, I mean, again, to go back to your question where my interest uh, in federalism comes from, I mean, when I ask myself, okay, I'm... I'm a comparativist, so this is this is how I think mm. via comparison. So I ask myself, okay, we're not the only society throughout the world, throughout history, that went to through rounds of civil wars and ethnic conflict. What did other societies that also suffered from ethnic conflict um, and identity-related frictions and somehow found a way to basically become more stable? What did they do? What was that way? Yeah. And over and over and over again, that's some kind of federalism. Yeah. I say some kind of federalism because there are multiple. Feder federalism is actually federalisms, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, but also, always some kind of federalism. So how did, you know, the, the, the Catholic and the Protestants and the, and the Germanophones and the Francophones in Switzerland, mm. how did they overcome centuries of internal war? Mm. Federalism. Yeah. How did the Walloon and the Flamand over, overcome deep sectarian yeah. you know, uh, uh, hatreds? They haven't. Uh, uh, they haven't, true. <laughs> no, actually, that's true. But then, so how do they live with that without falling? And they're not living. They, they have more paralysis than we do. Right? Uh, well, how do they go through that without falling into political violence? What yeah. kind of regime allow groups that fundamentally do not are very different and do not like one another yet to coexist peacefully without falling into what political science calls the civil war trap, mm. uh, on and on and on. So every time it's federalism. So hence my interest in federalism from a comparative perspective. I don't believe that it's a good idea mm. to run a country that is when you have um, um, multiple peoples within it to run it from a centralized perspective. It has to be some kind of uh, 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 some kind of federalism plus neutrality yeah. because of different peoples of that country cannot agree on you know who's a friend and who's an enemy when it comes to external powers. Yeah. Um, again, go back to Switzerland. Had they, say, intervened on the side of France during the First World War, well, the German part of Switzerland would have found an issue with that. Had they intervened on the side of 
uh, Germany, the French part would have found issue with that, and then that would have led to civil war. I think we are on a very similar situation here. If we intervene uh, on the side, when we intervene on the side of the Palestinians, the Christian side of the population has an issue with that. Now that we are close to Iran, the Sunni and the Christian and the Druze part of the population have an issue with that. So when I think about all these issues from a comparative perspective, mm. I keep thinking that the only formula, if there is a way, yeah. and I'm saying if there is a way, I'm not certain there is a way yeah. for Lebanon to to be stable. Mm. Maybe there's no way for Lebanon to be stable. Yeah. And maybe with it should, uh, we should think some kind of uh, separation. I'm not, I don't, I don't f- find that, uh, you know, a horrible idea to think about. Um, I, I believe people in Greek Cyprus live far better than, than, than we do here. So the, I mean, separation or the end of a country, in my mind, it's not, it's not, it's not a tragedy because uh, individuals matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, ideologies of, na- of nationalism do not matter. Countries do not matter. What, what matters is the individual. If for the future of Lebanese people, live, Lebanese individuals living here, it's better to go separate ways. It, it doesn't ma- I mean, I don't find that a bad idea. That being said, um, before going that far, yeah, yeah. from a comparative perspective, as a comparativist, as a political scientist, I can tell you uh, that typically societies that suffered from decades of civil war, in some cases centuries of civil war, and then eventually grew out of that and became stable, that happened via some kind of neutrality and some kind of federalism. So before we go to you, Nadim, just yeah. the, uh, is it through the PhD process that this idea was convincing or does it go back to the earlier earlier notions of, yeah 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 no i said well uh, i mean obviously when i went to the states i was 30 so mm-hmm. i was already reading about politics before yeah, yeah. going to the states so no that's actually earlier than that but then let me tell you that nothing i read during the six years in graduate school convinced me that I was wrong about that specific point. If anything, yeah. Yeah. everything I read, all the people I, I, I've spoken to, and obviously I've spoken to a lot of people working on contentious politics, civil wars, ethnic conflict, what have you, actually suggested that, yes, I mean, you have to accept that uh, um, identities, clearly identities are socially constructed, but once they are constructed, you cannot unconstruct them at will. Identities yeah. are less flexible than many of us think they are. Mm. Um, the Druze identity, the Maronite identity, the Sunni identity, the Shia, these are not misunderstandings. These are not things that, you know, we will wake up one beautiful morning and discover that uh, they will disappear. Yeah. They will not disappear. And they are legitimate and they are here to stay. And so the question is, that how you know, how do you manage that diversity? What do you do for people with different identities, different political choices, different feelings about things? And yet, mm sharing the same land and in our case a very narrow land and yet to live together and and academically i can tell you that's some kind of uh, federalism and for the life of me i cannot understand why this idea which in my mind is on the one hand empirically proven and more importantly it's liberal because federalism is basically vivre laisser vivre Federalism basically means if a majority insider does not want people to allow women to, you know, go to, you know, uh, swim. And if this is what the majority wants, who am I, Hisham Bonassif, to say you have no right? And if a majority wants something different, then that's fine. Point is, every culture respects the other culture, provided its own choices are also respected. And that I don't see that happening 
within a centralized system of government. I see that happening easier within some kind of decentralization. And federalism is the ultimate decentralization. So I'll leave the last question, which we're approaching sure. to the issue that you hinted at, which I share, is that there could be a fait accompli, which is eventual separation anyway. Mm. Whether federalism works or not, that could be where things are moving uh, gradually. I'm curious about, and I, I watched on MTV and I liked that split screen. I think it was a highway. Uh, I don't remember where exactly, where the, uh, the somebody next to you pointed and said, that's current Lebanon and that's federal Lebanon. There's no difference. Yeah. In other words, these cars are moving. People are moving back and forth. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of demystifying and also saying that, look, not much changes on the ground in terms of your ability to get places. It's more about autonomy and expression. Yeah. And I guess born from what you saw as growing up and fast forwarding until today, the comfort of a community that you see which is on the decline and needs to be saved. I think that's the spirit of it. Mm. But I mean, I mean, of course, yes, you're right. But even if it wasn't, if it weren't on the decline. Mm. It's a, it's a solution anyway. It's a solution yeah. anyway. Right. Even if we were talking in the 1950s when demographically nobody was on the decline, right? right? You do not run a country that way, mm. like Lebanon, within a centralized system of government. And you do not run a country like Lebanon without neutrality because we do not agree on the basic choices of foreign policy. This is, by the way, why I disagree strongly with Taif. Because Taif not only does not contain neutrality, in fact, the, the philosophy of Taif makes neutrality impossible. impossible. Because Taif says very clearly that we are an Arab country and we have to abide by whatever the Arabs decide to do, what have you, which basically means if the Arabs want to fight Iran, we'll have to fight Iran with the Arabs. So no. if the Arabs want to fight uh, Israel, we are with the Arabs. Also, Taif, by the way, says we also should have alaqat mumayyaza ma'ashaqiqa Syria. Uh, so that on, means not only you cannot be neutral, um, but if there are quarrels between Arabs and non-Arabs, if there is a quarrel between the Syrian state and another state from within the confines of Taif, we cannot be neutral because according to the Alaqat Mumayyaz, we have to be with our dear brotherly Syria. Let yeah. me let me push just quickly on two points. Yeah. If If federalism is the viable solution, which you described in terms of other countries' experiences, could you say, could you suggest why? It's not something that took at least the mainstream attention before. If you it's, go, yeah, yeah. sorry. Uh, it's been around for a long time, but I, I think... Uh, so sorry to interrupt. Is it more an expression because of the anxiety that it's heightened now because of that, rather than going back to the 50s and 60s, for example? No, I mean, uh, listen, I was a federalist in the 1990s when the Syrians I were see. there. But yeah. I mean, in the 1990s, you couldn't go on TV and say, you know, I am yeah. for federalism. So. Uh, so, um, but, but so federalism has always been there. Um, but, you know, if you're proposing an alternative for a system and the system seems to be working, you will not get a lot of people, you'll not get a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah. When there's clearly a, a, you know, a crisis in the system and the system has collapsed yeah. and you're suggesting an alternative, then actually more people want to hear about what you have to say yeah. because they, people understand that the system is not working. So if the could, time for federalism has come yeah. in terms of grabbing the attention of people. But federalism itself has been there for a long time. If I could describe your role the way I see it, yeah. it's being the narrator behind that cause on television, 
oral expression, sometimes in between shows on MTV. Yeah. That's kind of, that's how I got to know you. Yeah. So I think you are filling that role effectively. Um, another quick point, if federalism were to happen, yeah. does that require a security pact with Hezbollah? Well, see, uh, that's another good question. So let let me tell you, I think I just said that federalism is federalisms. Yeah. Now, we can think of one kind of, just as we say, excuse me, la merkaziya and la merkaziya muassa. We can have federalism, federalia and federalia muassa. Federalia muassa so much that it becomes close to some kind of confederation. And if we end up with something close to a confederation, for example. Yeah, yeah, then we can say, okay, if the Shia uh, majority regions vote democratically to have to keep Hezbollah, that is fine. It's their sovereign choice. However, if people in Perry vote democratically not to allow uh, Hezbollah, that's also fine. Then, so essentially, you end up with some kind of pact where you have, if there's one component of the population, one region of the population has decided freely to allow Hezbollah to retain its arms. That's their choice. If Tripoli, by contrast, decided not to allow Hezbollah to me, that's also their choice, and we have to abide by the rules of the game. So from that perspective, yes, federalism slash confederalism can provide some kind of you know, solution for the problem, whereas I don't see that happening within the confines of a, a centralized state. As far as you know, maybe, yeah. it's not, maybe it's premature to ask this, can you... Think of how Hezbollah would react to this kind of process. Oh, I mean, that, that does not require a lot of imagination. Hezbollah, who controls all the... Hezbollah now is thinking, what mine is mine and what yours is mine as well. So almost by definition, Hezbollah is going to reject any yeah. kind of... System uh, change or... Yeah. Any. I mean, Hezbollah currently is uh, a great force for the status quo. Um, federalism is an anti-statico idea. Mm. So mm. almost by definition, you have a clash between, yeah. you know, the federalist logic and the Hezbollah logic. The, right. Hezbo- the Khomeinists now, or the Hezbollahis now, are the great, you know, the French used to call them the Jacobins. The Jacobins of the French Revolution were the great centralizers, whereas the Girondins wanted some kind of decentralization in France. Hezbollah now is that kind the, of the, the the jacobins the great centralizers because they control the centralized system so how do you manage i mean i know it hasn't happened yeah. so that's why it's hypothetical yeah how do you manage a security problem like that with something like federalism or confederalism yeah. does it require and i'm not suggesting this is the way forward i'm just thinking through it yeah does that require a competitive security arrangement which could look more like the 1980s it wasn't federalism, obviously, but you had multiple security forces yeah, competing. See, um, see, I don't like comparisons with the 1980s because that was a civil war. Yeah. And all I'm thinking is what can we do to avoid going back yeah. to the civil war? Uh, but yeah, I am uh, thinking about some kind of, you know, the, you lived in the States, you know, every state has its own National Guard, mm-hmm. right? You have the National Guards in California. You have the National Guard in different states. So you can, for instance, imagine Hezbollah becoming some kind of National Guard uh, uh, for the South if the majority of the people uh, of the South want that. Whereas you can imagine people in Tripoli voting not to have a National Guard or voting to have a National Guard that would be uh, 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 rec- that would be recruiting its its members from the people of uh, of Tripoli. So it's more Hezbollah, the political party, not Hezbollah, the militia. That's, uh, in other words, so long as there's this machine, yeah, 
any idea is going to be cut short. But I think the way you're describing the Hezbollah National Guard, it sounds like a disarmed Hezbollah. No, not a disarmed Hezbollah, but Hezbollah that is confined from a military perspective and a security perspective right. to the part of the country that wants Hezbollah. Whereas mm. now we can have Hezbollah. I mean, maybe here there's a Hezbollah. I mean, who knows, right? Yeah. Uh, so this is what I don't want to see happening. If the majority of the Shia democratically want to have Hezbollah military presence in the, in the South, I, I abide by that. I that see. Is, so it's an acceptance of that? Yes. Okay. Provided they, accept, they also accept that if the majority of people in Tripoli, if the majority of people in Ashrafi, if they do not want that, then, you know, um, you cannot have Hezbollah security presence and military presence there. It is the most interesting academic exercise happening right now in Lebanon. Mm. Yeah. The appeal to system change mm. and the ideas that are emerging. Yeah. So I appreciate you taking me further into the future. Before we wrap it up, though, Nadim, this debate is born from two episodes really. Mm. And I think it stems from your divergence from that option moving forward. It was only 30 seconds. My... Maybe something less than a minute for sure. Yeah, yeah. It was less than a minute. Uh, could you elaborate on what Hisham just said and if there's anything you see different? Yeah, I see it completely different because, uh, I mean, Hisham has... Uh, is lucky that everything he's read has proved him right. And the more I read, the more I think I'm wrong. I'm trying to, I'm, I call myself a repentant economist and I'm trying to unlearn everything I've learned. So we're in different phase of, uh, I'm re-examining. Did, did I say everything I read proved me right? Yeah, you said that, that, uh, that your thesis through eight years of studying You've has been reinforced, and it's been no. As easy, I said everything I about the possibility of federalism head. finding a solution yes. for country a country like us proved me right about this specific about point. this specific. Yeah, but I didn't say that everything I read no, about okay. anything proved me right about anything. That's a, okay. That okay. Completely different. But um, you see, I don't see the mechanism. Yeah, and no, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. Yeah, I'm. If anything, I'm. I've participated in lots of international negotiations. And in a, in a, if, if you're going to negotiate a treaty, you have to choose the time. And the, your, your negotiation is with a party that does not want to negotiate and that has the whole cake. Mm. So, so I think there is a conversation to be had whether a, such a negotiation has any chance of success mm. uh, on from a practical and realist uh, level because Hezbollah now basically doesn't have to do anything they, they uh, the, 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 all they have to do is block and the country is disintegrating and they're taking over gradually and in in one week in sorry in three weeks we won't have a central bank in a couple of months we won't have an army all chief right. true and uh, then we won't have a judiciary, judiciary and we don't have a we don't have a constitutional council. The country disintegrate they're, while they're watching without anything. <clears throat> so there's no there's no incentive for them to to. So from a purely practical negotiation, uh, uh, we. I, I don't see I don't I don't see it see it working. But who, who said from that from an ideological perspective, yeah. I am far more extreme than you are. Yeah. Because I reject them 
completely on not only on behalf of Christians or Muslims or Sunnis or Druze, on behalf, even on behalf of Shia. And I think the Shias are the ones who will reject them eventually the most. And they are the ones who are suffering most from from them. Yeah. And, 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 and the future of all of us depends on better actors coming together. I mean, we don't have to choose between... Uh, uh, I don't want to name names. <laughs> we don't have to choose between bad actors and take... Ba- there, is, there, is a, there is a better uh, way of uh, existing... Even in Europe, there is. Uh, yeah, in, in Europe now, you have bad actors like Putin, like you know, some like uh, Orban or or whatever. Um, so so, uh, I don't. I, I'm less compromising with bad actors than, and I less acceptance. Uh, you're the nice guy. I'm not. If you want. Nadim, first of all, um, I don't see as anything I said as extreme. No, no, I'm but just, you are no, but you are yeah, described I'm, as extreme. I'm, just, I'm more extreme than you are. I, I I'm, yeah. I'm an, I, I like to think of myself as a realist who's looking mm-hmm. at facts. I understand history is, um, in politics. I mean, human nature is imperfect. Society is imperfect. So there's no such a thing as a perfect solution. I'm trying to come up with an imperfect solution for an absolutely tragic situation. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and some, by the way, something I note about this imperfect solution of mine, how how easy it is to uh, criticize it. And most of the time people have no plan B. Okay, so let us say that's a bad, let's say that's not the solution. So what is actually the solution? Most of the people who are spending days on end criticizing federalism do not have a, a better idea. And I think that speaks a lot to the benefits of federalism. But that's not the point. My point is, when you're saying eventually they will reject Hezbollah, yeah, I'm not, well, I mean, I don't see the Alawi Syrians rejecting. Uh, I the see Asad, them very much the, doing the Assad regime. They had a they had a chance in 2011, and in fact, the majority of them. But I think you know that I study civil military relations. Yeah, I spent years uh, on end studying the Syrian military. I went to Turkey mm. and I uh, uh, for four months, and I interviewed hundreds of. Sunni officers who defected. They were all Sunnis. I didn't see one one single other officer who defected from uh, the Assad regime. And I know that uh, uh, Alawi uh, officers simply put did not defect and the majority of them, the extreme majority, uh, overwhelming majority of the community remained loyal to the Assad regime. I don't see the Shia in, in, uh, in Iraq uh, uh, defecting from uh, the Hash, the Hash, the, they the, are, the Hash, they are. You have the Tishrin uh, movement uh, in Iraq. Aziz, let me. Is, is I'm not very saying, serious. I'm not saying any community. There's no community in the world. I agree with that. That yeah. is, you know, 100% a unified actor. But there are clear uh, majorities among the Alawis of Syria, for instance, mm-hmm. that remain loyal to this day to the Assad regime, despite the horrors that regime perpetrated in Syria. This is why I have a problem with what you're saying from methodological perspective, because I take facts, brutal as they are, ugly as they are, and I try to build my political analysis on these facts. Whereas what you're doing, you are so morally repulsed, and it's morally repulsive. I agree with that. But you are so morally repulsed by the fact that a majority of Alawis are loyal to Assad, or a majority of Shia are loyal to Hezbollah, that you seem to deny that fact 
and and just project a beautiful future in which the Shia will eventually gloriously rebel against Hezbollah. I don't I don't see that happening. I don't see that happening in Syria, and this is where we are. Hey, what to right, do about? You're right. Yeah. But you see, because because I don't see it as essentialist that people who are Alawis are born pro Assad. Yeah. I see that a regime like Assad and a party like Hezbollah you has methods of establishing hegemony mm. through assassination, through dependency, through blackmail, through persecution, through uh, war, provoking war. I mean, the 2006 war was deliberately provoked by Hezbollah to reestablish its hegemony over its own community and over over and and its credentials as a. So these are these are methods that Assad uses, that the Hashid use, that uh, uh, Hezbollah uses, that bad actors use, that Putin Putin uses, and uh, other other. And so I can see through it that that there are there that certain bad actors have methods of control over a, a, a society which not does not necessarily um, mean that the society is in support of it. Sometimes they have no choice in, 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 in the matter. In the same way as a um, drug cartel in Mexico or in Colombia controls a society and corrupts the army and the judiciary and the you know, El Chapo Guzman is in jail now, but his uh, the the way the way they established uh, control was by by framing by you know they, if you don't collaborate they come and tell you Senor, your niece Conchita she's beautiful studying law in university you understand that they are threatening you and you comply and then they give you a thousand dollars in an envelope you become part of the system and if you don't they kill you and this is how bad actors establish. A hegemony it doesn't mean that they are that there is support. It means that you want you want to liberate them from that bad actor as much as you want to liberate yourself. Especially that even if I don't care, let them uh, let them go to hell and live with Hezbollah as much. I don't think that it is viable to have an order where such an actor still prevails, even in small a small part of. Because they have means of dragging everybody into the, the, the into the same, uh, and they have mishbas. They have means to do it. They have done it. They have. We have been. The the country has collapsed through constant battering, constant assassinations, constant state of war, constant uh, smuggling. We are. I think we're all victims of. Of that. So that's that's the difference, I think. That's one of the And, sure. and I don't think yeah. I'm not anti-federalism. I'm for decentralization, and I'm for a very weak state, and all, all this. Yeah. But I don't think it would resolve it, it would resolve it to accept that bad actor uh, by separating from it. V very brief. Sure, of course. Yeah. So, so the Hashd Shabi is a bad actor. What you're calling a bad actor in Iraq, I think. Kurdistan and the Kurds are doing a good job at, to a large extent, protecting themselves from that bad actor. Mm -hmm. Assad regime is a bad actor in Syria. Mm -hmm. And I think the Kurds of Syria 
feeble as they are, imperfect as they are, but they have carved a place for themselves in Syria, that they are relatively within, again, the, the imperfection of the situation, protecting themselves uh, from the Assad regime. I believe some kind of confederal arrangement would give us also a kind of safe haven in this country, whereby just like the Kurds in, of Iraq that are relatively safe from the Hashd al-Shabi, we too can be safe uh, from, uh, from, from Hezbollah via the logic that I am suggesting. I don't see a solution. Mm. I don't see that happening within the confines of the logic that you are suggesting. Let me wrap it up. Oops, sorry. With the final thought. And I think this, what we're talking about, the reason we're here, the reason this debate happened and the reason we're not agreeing is because there's a deep pain in Lebanon. And we're healing it in separate ways, which I think is natural. Nadim is holding on to something that he grew up with. It's fading today, but he still holds on to it. Hisham, you grew up in a way that I didn't know before until we spoke today. I didn't know your early years. And I think what you've seen happen to Lebanon is what I've seen happen to Lebanon too. Rewi Hajj, on that little scooter ride, speaking to him for th almost three hours about Ashrafi. It's real. There is a problem. And anyone that suggests otherwise is misinformed. The Christians of Lebanon do not feel at home. That is true. Extinction is not an option. I don't think anyone on this stage is cheering on for one community to flee. I think we're just not seeing the it solution. Is, it is an option if they commit suicide. L let me wrap it up, though. Short of suicide, um, I fear that if the three of us weren't uh, alive, the country could end up in divorce. And I think divorce requires war. And I think war hasn't happened yet because Hezbollah is in control. There's no competition like there was in the 1970s. The PLO had a fierce opposition that almost won the initial battles. Kate'ib was training in the 1970s. We don't have a viable militia-like force that's training. And idiots that suggest the Lebanese forces is a militia, they're, they're the ones that are ideological. I think they're misinformed fundamentally. But later, if Hezbollah's security grip weakens, if the Syrians wiggle their way back in, if Lebanese parties do take up security measures, divorce could happen. And if that's the fait accompli, mm. is our whole discussion tonight, this back and forth, is it perhaps acknowledging that at the end of the day, what is happening to this country is less identity and religion and more war? But we've been stuck in endless war for too long. Our lives, we have not lived in a normal Lebanon. Nadim grew up in a semi-functioning Lebanon, but it wasn't perfect. Semi-functioning. I don't think I will ever live to see a normal Lebanon, but I may end up seeing divorce, and divorce to me hurts immensely. It's because even if I'm given a, given a permit, or even if I have to move myself, or even for that matter, if I want to express, my, express myself fully, I'm letting go of myself. I'm letting go of everything that brought me to Lebanon. And that doesn't make me feel right, it makes me feel wrong, like I'm an imposter. So can you take anything from that 
and maybe express how you see divorce happening if it's going to happen and if partition or separation is a reality what it could mean not for the christians of lebanon but for the rest could it be that we are left to deal with the rubble and the christians of lebanon move on i mean uh, how do uh, first of all let's make clear i'm calling for federalism not for divorce of course i'm just talking about divorce to answer your your question I meant it more uh, like if, if that's if, where if that, yeah. I mean, divorce could happen uh, peacefully. I mean, in Czechoslovakia, uh, Czechoslovakia does not exist anymore, right? Uh, because people voted uh, uh, to go their separate ways. So if we are going to think about divorce, one way to do divorce is not necessarily through war. Why not give, give every community uh, let's, the choice? Do you want to live in a united Lebanon or do you want to have your own uh, separate, separate Lebanon? Mm. That's one way. I mean, if a community chooses to have its own country, then that's that's how divorce it could could happen. Would that be sad? I think what would be really sad was more violence. If divorce is the way to avoid more violence in the future, then no divorce would not be sad. Mm. Again, I don't I don't see the fact that uh, Greek. Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots are no longer living in a united Cyprus. I don't see it as a tragedy. In my mind, that it would have been a tragedy had they been fighting one another over and over and over again. That would be a tragedy because people die yeah. that way. But the fact that you have, you know, uh, Muslim uh, Turk, Turks living on one side of the island and uh, Christian uh, Greeks living on the other side of the island and no wars and everybody taking on it, I don't see that as... Honestly, I don't see that as a tragedy. Um, in 1995, uh, the Quebecois, the French minority in, in Canada, were given the choice to leave or to stay in Canada. 51% yeah. chose to stay, 49% chose to leave. Had it been the other way around, we would have ended up with a new country called Quebec. Mm -hmm. And I don't see why that would have been uh, a disaster. So eventually, um, and again, I'm just answering your question. Yeah, yeah. If, so, if we end up with no Lebanon, smaller Uh, Lebanon's, but living peacefully, then that would be that would not be a tragedy. The mm. true tragedy, and this is what uh, I fear most. And this, by the way, what my what may end up being the case: uh, neither federalism nor divorce, nor a, a, a functioning centralized state. Nothing paralysis until death ad infinitum. Yeah. And you know that that could happen for years and years and decades. Remember Somalia. Yeah. Remember Yemen. I mean, I could think of uh, case studies where you ended up in, in a country stuck in a kind of more or less civil war or dysfunctioning state for decades and decades and decades on end. Mm -hmm. And this, I mean, if we're talking about what would be truly sad in my mind, that scenario would be the saddest scenario of all, and everything else is debatable. Almost like a permanently failed state, where you have Puntland in Somalia, sort of this odd autonomous yeah. region, but it's not exactly yeah. shining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I don't remember, so I cannot quote it 100%, but it's from Orwell 1984. Hmm. It's, I think it says, I took a look at the future, and it's somebody's foot that is uh, marked uh, on somebody's face, something like that. I'm quoting that very badly. But I took a look at the future and it's just somebody's foot crushing the head of somebody else. Uh, that, this is how 1984 ends. Mm. Uh, I worry that this could be 
us. I mean, we don't, I mean, the, the country doesn't matter for anyone, really. I mean, the West doesn't really care about what's going on here. Mm. Uh, Iran is extremely powerful. It's likely to remain powerful for some time, at least. Yeah. Uh, Syria is in chaos. Iraq is in chaos. The whole the whole region is in flame. We can be stuck like that for years and, and years and decades, uh, unless we carve a, a place within that chaos that would allow us to have uh, some semblance of a life. And that's that's like Kurdistan. That's that's the example I'm really thinking about a lot yeah. lately. I mean, Iraq is still dysfunctioning. Iran is still very powerful. The Hashd al-Shabi is still there, but the Kurds are living somewhat and this is decently. A, this and is in no way trying to play a trick on you on yeah. the contrary it's, yeah, yeah. it's quoting you yeah. that to you would be mount lebanon that would me that to me would be some kind of free zone yeah uh that is yet whose frontiers are yet to be defined mm. but that would be definitely definitely free from uh hezbollah amal and anybody who supports hezbollah and amal so that could be pretty much the rest of the country that could be mount lebanon and and tripoli um, that could be only Mount Lebanon, depending on what people want. I mean, I don't have, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, an exact solution for this. But I do believe that it's time to think roughly along these lines. Yeah. Uh, uh, sticking with the March 14th dream of a, a powerful, functioning, centralized state, that's an illusion. And, that's a, and this is where my anti-romanticism kicks in. Mm. That's an illusion. Mm. That's not going to happen. It's a dangerous uh, way to think about things. And we need to put that behind us and start thinking along the lines that the Federalists are suggesting. So the local solution, yeah. born from a local expression, yeah. there's no international engagement here. This is a Lebanese idea. Yeah. Lending... It's borrowing from other examples which you described that are peaceful ways forward, not violent way forward. They're meant to alleviate. They're meant to bring more harmony. Everything that Hisham said mm. and adding to what I said earlier, which is the direction could be heading to partition and divorce and also emphasizing that's not what Hisham is saying. It is. I mean, he's talking about partition. He's calling it federalism. I mean, I mean, Kurdistan is partition. <laughs> it's not. It's not federalism. Kurdistan is not its own country. It's it, it, Iraq it is, is the, the country. The Kurds think of it as partition, and you're. You shouldn't be ashamed of saying it's part. You, you, I'm saying the whole region is in a mess, and there has to be because of certain bad actors, and the whole region could be a much better place including Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Palestine, Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf and, and Yemen and all that, we could, the whole region could go into a much better, better place. And I unrealistically think that, in your words, Yanni, we should, we should think of that. And I also think that admitting that the region is going to be like this forever uh, uh, and that we can carve ourselves a little a little enclave to live separately from from it is not realistic and on top of that half the people in that enclave are are pro hezbollah yani daunists are pro hezbollah you should hear you should hear them in their honeymoon talks and they don't even they, they you know they look at the language look at the uh, how 
can you know, you know th these are political opinions they're not ethnically or religiously uh, determined uh, uh, political political ideas you no know. I have people in my family who are honest yeah it's not, it's not and they are pro Hezbollah. You, well, you have the family. You, you cannot live off. You cannot live uh, separate. You you cannot create an enclave in a swamp, you, uh, uh, and and think we can survive uh, uh, without having at least the aspirations of making the the the, the region a, a better place, which a lot of people do, and a lot of people on each on every side and we're not the only ones who 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 want a better a better life see the, the hisham you have the last you. word yeah. um, there's a dual problem with what you're suggesting uh, first of all if the situation continues for another 30 years or 40 years uh, not a lot of the other communities will, will still be here. I mean, people are living yeah, in droves. It's a different. Uh, you don't seem to take that into consideration, and I find that mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, um, that's one thing. The other thing, um, again, I don't see what's so wrong about uh, Kurdistan. I mean, in, in, in Kurdistan, the economy is doing relatively well. Obviously, yeah. there's, the, there's the oil factor and all that. The security is doing relatively well. The Kurds are, are you know, they can go to school and learn in their own language, in their, which, in their own language which, which, which is good and legitimate. So they have their own enclave uh, within the confines of a dysfunctional state. And I don't see, you know, what's so morally right or politically right let us say Kurdistan did not exist. Let us say the Kurds were not autonomous within Iraq, and they would be suffering just as like people in Basra are suffering right now. What's so good about that? I mean, what's so you know romantic? I mean, I, I don't see anything good about that. So yeah, yes, actually, you can have a kind of uh, semi-functioning or somewhat functioning enclave uh, within within the confine of a dysfunctional state. And again, while that would be an imperfect solution for what we're going through, I would advise, I would suggest. Um, to prefer imperfect solutions that are real, that could work, with all the solutions that are basically, again, completely divorced from social reality because they are built more in, in Arabic, there's a term which I like a lot, raghbawiyah. It comes from raghba. I have a raghba in seeing that happening, thus this is happening. Yeah. I think raghbawiyah is, is a very, very dangerous way of looking at things. Yeah. And I suggest we avoid it. I'll just Play. end here. <laughs> it's the last word. Let me let me bring it home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did five episodes this week alone. Yeah. yeah. So I speak a lot. I record a lot. I edit on my own. When MTV doesn't have help, I go and edit their episodes too. I'm exhausted. I think it's beginning to show. I'm actually taking a break in August for that reason. I haven't taken a break in years. Five years. I'm taking the month off to lose some weight. Yes. <laughs> and to stop looking at social media in particular. If you manage, let me, tell me how. Oh. <laughs> uh, a friend took me to Marshall's cave. I'm thinking of okay. that as a... Totters doesn't deliver there, though. <laughs> That's the only problem. I have to cook. <laughs> Was it 30 years he went silent? Ooh. Marshal uh, but I think 30 years. I'm, he's very inspiring for me right now. Okay. 20 years ago, thanks to Sarmad Salibi, I meet Kamal Salibi. 
18 years ago, briefly introduced to Samir Asir. Three nights ago, an author, Rawi Hajj, who writes brilliantly. And you know what? Three Lebanese authors that are Christian. There isn't much going on here of a common thread. And I actually like that. And I like Kamal Salibi for what he believes. I love Rawi Hajj, the way he writes about Christian anxiety too, and his own identity. And I have to beg to differ on one thing. It's not illusion. It's my cause. If federalism is real, so was March 14. And I think this man paid an unfortunate price, not because he's Christian or Muslim. Those last words he wrote about the Beirut Spring shining if Damascus shines, meaning the Syrian regime is going to cost him his life. He was right. Hezbollah inheriting that destroyed Lebanon. And I think that's the message that I hold on to, which is I can't dishonor them. So that's my cause. This is the hardest episode I've ever done. Uh, in five years, I've never moderated a difficult debate. I've, I've done debates before. Actually, I did a debate for Meisha yet. She puts an earpiece in your who ears. Was, who was on the other side? Oh, the usual suspects. Oh. Yeah. And I found that to be nerve-wracking for technical reasons. Emotionally, mentally, this is the hardest episode I've ever done. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but that's why I do this, is because I do think none of us have the tools, unfortunately. Unless we're fighters, I don't think we are. Unless we aspire to violence, none of us do. Hezbollah is winning. And it's winning through those methods. And the peaceful thinkers are the ones that get killed first. And what's left is people like us, who are not on their radar right now, who talk in a lovely setting like Hamdun, with a wonderful audience that I think stuck around. Who are they still listen here? patiently. You guys were very kind with your time for coming up to Hamdun. Now I have to walk back to Beit Meri because... <laughs> I'll put you in the trunk. Uh, do me a favor. If anyone took photos, if you're posting them, tag the three of us. And special credit to Sarmat Salibi for suggesting this. Round of applause to Sarmat. Check out Federal Lebanon on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Check out Confucius yeah. on Twitter and Nadim Shadi on Instagram and Facebook. I have to ask you both. We're well beyond our time. Well beyond our time. And it's late. Hey. Do you still have the energy to do a quick Q&A or is it off the table? Yeah. No, no, of course. You do? It's not off the table. Is the audience willing to, to stick around? We have, to, we have to see them. Okay, let's take a 10-minute break. And we'll be back here for a Q&A, but please, the question's brief. We need to get home eventually. So 10 minute break, guys. Thank you.
وين الشالوت تطلع فوق الشالوت تقبل درج لفوق فوق على هذا في محل كان كان محكمة درزية هذا بيتنا Gentlemen, we can actually hear your conversation. Yes, that's good. Okay. okay. Right, so nothing to hide. <laughs> we're back. And it's Is a this where, yeah. Yes, it's a QA session now. But can we see the audience? Uh, there's a light uh, showing on them, actually. There's a light shining on them? Yeah. Uh, are there questions up front? Is that Sarah at the front? Yes. Oh. Sarah, you get the first question. Could you, just for the episode, introduce yourself? What you do and that's, all that? Hi everyone, uh, Roni. I really admire you. Thank you so much. Sada um, Yassin, landscape architect, urbanist, faculty at AUB, USG, graduated from LSE, UPenn, Harvard, AUB. Formerly candidate at Be- Beirut, Beirut Second District. Uh, my question and comment is in two parts. 1958, Camille um, Shamoun. But also Sami Saloh, Sunni, Muslim, secular, feminist, who stood against the Nasserist. His house was burned in uh, Bastafawa, and his family was threatened. So I think this very uh, minimalistic and very uh, non, um, non-modern way of describing politics and um, and sociologically understanding the different layers of the Lebanese society as a whole really troubles me today. Um, from the generation of my parents, and Nadine, maybe you know them, I know of many Christians <coughs> who were in Fatah, Christians from Haysersu, from Beirut. So I'm seg- I'm segue to the um, numbers of the voters turnout um, of the last elections from UNDP, <coughs> so South one, 49%, uh, South second, 51%, and South third, 48%. So we have 50% who's not voting, uh, despite the fatwa of Hassan Nasrallah, despite the threats, despite the money, despite the violence. So what does this 50% in this district think of? Um, adding to that, that I had the, <coughs> I had access to vo- um, voting, uh, voting schools in Beirut, and I was requested by Shia Beirutis from Khanda Al Ghami Blood to go with them to vote for the Beirut Tahrir or other non-Shia, uh, non-Hezbollah and Amal lists because they were scared, their parents were being threatened. They were being threatened by posts they had put on Facebook, Instagram. And these same people were our friends, either people we knew or people we had befriended during the October 17 movement who were texting us, sending videos from Khanda al Ghami saying, people coming down, beating people is not us because we're with you on the street. Sorry, Sarah, just because... I don't want to take too much more of their time. Just let's focus so, on the question. Yeah. So the question is, I think... Um, I don't think that federalism will uh, solve Hezbollah. Federalism will make Hezbollah stronger. And I don't think Hezbollah will accept a division or a federalist uh, uh, solution. 
And I think that we need to empower, and I said that to you, Ronnie, during our uh, interview last year, we need to empower, encourage people who are look like, like Lukman Slim and not isolate them and point fingers at them because they are here, they exist. And I would like to say that to Nadim, I want the Senate. And a lot of us want to try the Senate. And a lot of us are secular from generations and we have the right to exist and we have the right to be represented. Mm. Maybe we can start quickly over the Senate, Nadim, and then give Hisham. But, but that's not the question. She just made a political statement. Yeah. But, okay, there was no question in there then. Okay. But, but she's talking about the Senate. I can tell her I'm the only sectarian in Lebanon. No, every people you talk, every person you talk to says that they are secular in, in Lebanon, including Nabih Birri and Wali Jumblat and General Aoun and uh, everybody else. So I'm, I happen to be the only sectarian in Lebanon. Okay, thank you for the statement. I did not, I did not take, I did not, uh, uh, I did not uh, remove. remove my religion from my Akhraj aid, but I support everybody else to do it because my religion is okay. I'm Protestant. Uh, are there any questions? We can do the statements maybe uh, after, but just are there questions? I can't really see. So if there's anyone. I am, I'm being your eyes. Can I? Yeah. Of course. Let's give credit to Georges Verdini who helped me with the lights and the cameras. By the way, I'd like to plug him. Mm. He runs a page called Polyblog yeah. on Instagram. Oh. He produces a show called the Seha. I think we're both on Seha in different, yeah. And uh, he was the producer of Serde for two months. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I introduced you. <laughs> yeah. Hello, I'm going to try to keep it as short as possible. My question is today, do you think if Hezbollah was not part of the, of the equation, we would be having this conversation? Uh, is it for me? Sure. Uh, absolutely, because uh, remember, George, uh, we had a civil war in 1958, 5,000 people died, and there was no Hezbollah there. Uh, the state surrendered to the Palestinians in 1969, and there was no Hezbollah there. Uh, the state surrendered again to the Palestinians in 1973 via the Melkart Accord, and there was no Hezbollah there. 1975 happened, and there was no Hezbollah. The War of the Mountain happened, there was no Hezbollah, etc., etc., etc. So the system had failed uh, again and again and again before Hezbollah. Um, and so we should have had a conversation about the system, you know, decades ago before even Hezbollah. So the short answer to your question is absolutely uh, on one hand. On the other hand, remember, Hezbollah is the product of the civil war, which itself happened uh, under a centralized system of government. Um, so we have to, even when we think about Hezbollah, we have to think, um, we have to link it to the uh, form of government that we have. So absolutely, the short answer to your question is absolutely yes. And I think while thinking above anything else about Hezbollah, because it's like the elephant in the room, uh, our political thinking about the Lebanese crisis should not be confined to Hezbollah. And we certainly should not think that if somehow magically Hezbollah disappears, uh, you know, everything will be OK, because everything was not OK even before Hezbollah existed. Yes. Uh, 
but I think it's important to acknowledge that Hezbollah has outgrown the problems that have preceded it and allowed it to happen. So no, even even if we were to reverse and uh, go back in time and look at things, we cannot overcome the first obstacle that we have, which is the problem uh, that became bigger than the problems that uh, allowed it to happen. And I don't think that uh, in any mathematical equation, because you love numbers, I do too, in any mathematical equation, if you change any number, if you change any sign, the entire result would be totally different, even if it was a, a small increment. So what about in our case, which is it's the biggest number in the equation? If it weren't there, I think the result would be entirely, entirely different. We should still be talking about the system, of course, but I don't think we would have to be talking about it with this level of uh, desperation, I think we'd feel a lot more comfortable. Uh, second of all, I don't, I don't agree. I, I watched you on Marcel Ghanem last week, mm. and uh, and uh, I saw that you made the conclusion that because 95% of the Shia voters voted for Hezbollah, then de facto they are they co-sign on Hezbollah's manifesto, which which claims that Lebanon and the region must be uh, ruled by Muslims because it belongs to Muslims. I think if you go back to the origins and the books of any ideology or religion in the world, you're going to find equally problematic things. But the people who adopt them today, including, I think, the teachings of the church and Christianity, I think the, the church has taught severely problematic things in its history. But people who practice Christianity today do not necessarily co-sign on these things. Mm. But I also think that people are voting for Hezbollah because, first of all, they don't have any other option. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with the, the entire narrative of uh, Mr. Nadim in this. They system alternative, and the people who try to create alternatives end up being dead or or isolated or excluded. So I think Hezbollah without violence would would, would only be a matter of time before the five percent turns into a fifty percent. Then I think without violence it is the inevitable. Uh, result, Hezbollah would not be able to continue to hold a grip. And if this weren't the case, Hezbollah would have given up their weapons a long time ago if they were able to simply with ideology and identity uh, continue to hold a grip on power. Even the Iranians in Iran are refusing the, the ideology of the IRGC. And third of all, I, I, you acknowledge that uh, uh, identities so, yeah. are social constructs. Yeah, of course. So you said we cannot deconstruct already existing identities, but I think we can, we can construct new ones that outgrow the old ones. We, we don't want to deconstruct sectarian identity. We want to construct a Lebanese identity that Lebanese people will behold above their sectarian right. identities. Thank you. All, all excellent points. Let me begin with the, with the last one, because I presume you, 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 you seem to be looking at me. Yes, okay, good. <laughs> Taib, again, let's go back to the comparative dimension of things. Um, it's very easy to say that we can do this, we can do that. Theoretically, we can come up with, you know, uh, theories like that. Let's think empirically, okay? Um, we're not the only uh, country in the, in the Middle East with multiple com communities in it, so we can think from a comparative perspective. Did the Syrians do it? I mean, uh, was the Syrian, the young Syrian state able to somehow come up with some kind of uh, trans-communitarian Syrian nationalism that uh, broke the divide line or transcended the divide line between Sunnis and Alawis or between Arabs and Kurds? I think the answer is no, because had this happened, we wouldn't have had the Syrian civil war. 
um, was the Iraqi state capable of coming up with some kind of, again, uh, new identity that transcended the Sunni-Shia divide line and the Arab-Kurdish divide line? The answer is also uh, not at all. Uh, was Cyprus uh, capable or able to come up with something like you just suggested? The answer is also not at all. So again, uh, George, it's very easy to say this is Rahbawiya. This is what I call Rahbawiya. Anta Targab, you wish to see this happening. From an empirical perspective, if it failed to happen once and twice and three times and four times and five, then it's time to basically look back, take a step back from what we want and, and start looking at facts for what they are, not for what we wish them to be. Um, I can go beyond that. Uh, I honestly, because uh, I keep thinking about societies where you had big numbers of Christians and Muslims anywhere in the world, were they able to come up with some kind of nationalism that transcended the divide line between Christianity and Islam? I don't pretend that I have a full, uh, uh, you know, list of, of such countries, but every single country I can think about with big numbers, significant numbers. I'm not talking about, you know, Muslims in the state, which, which are like maybe 3%, or cops in Egypt, which are 5th or 6th or 7%. I'm talking about countries where you had big numbers of Christians and Muslims coexisting in the same land. Uh, what happens next? So I can think of ex-Yugoslavia. Um, I can think of uh, Sudan. Um, I can think of Cyprus. Uh, I can think of Nigeria. Um, I can think of Timor-Leste in Indonesia. Uh, I can think of Lebanon, obviously. And every single time, um, these societies were unable to do what you suggested they should do. Um, we should take that into consideration. Um, we should ask ourselves if the, Cyprus, if the people in Cyprus were unable to do it, if the people in Yugoslavia were unable to do it, if the people in Sudan were unable to do it, why should the Lebanese be able to do it? Are we smarter than, than because, everybody? Because Lebanon is neither of those places and it's a different time. It's, it's not a different time. We're talking about contemporary politics. I'm not, George, I'm not talking about what happened in the Reconquista. Yes. I'm telling you about contemporary yes. Cyprus, contemporary mm. Yugoslavia, contemporary uh, Timor-Leste. Timor-Leste, Timor of course, is the Christian majority part of Indonesia that eventually became its own state because, you know, they couldn't remain in Indonesia forever. Sudan, you know, the, the Sudan became, you, you ended up with Sudan and South Sudan only a few years ago. Yugoslavia happened not, you know, not like 300 years ago. So we're talking about our time and age, all these countries where you had Christianity and Islam coexisting. They, you know, the story does not end well. Actually, what's going on in France as we speak is also to a certain extent part of that story. Again, this is not a rosy thing to say. This is not a romantic thing to say, but, but it is what it is. And this is, this is how I understand political analysis. Before we get to you, Nadim, uh, Hisham, could you comment on the reference to Iran? I think that was a question in there. Yeah. What was, can you just say it quickly? I, I was saying that even Iranians in Iran are refusing to live by this ideological, uh, religious... Yeah, uh, yeah uh, I think this is where the comparison does not stand, because uh, in Iran, you don't have um, the friction between uh, uh, Shia and Christians and between... Uh, Shia and Sunnis in equal numbers. Here, the communitarian dimension makes things more complicated. I think, what, George, I think what you're not taking into consideration is this. Uh, for most Shia, this is their interpretation of history. Um, under, under the Ottoman uh, Empire, they were despised uh, because they were non-Sunnis. 
Uh, and by the way, that's that's mostly true, especially if you study 19th century Shia history. Uh, due to the conflict between the Ottomans and the Safavid, mm. uh, uh, the, the Arab Shia suffered a lot because from an Ottoman perspective, uh, they were considered to be like a kind of uh, Trojan horse. So while the Shia were never, you know, pampered under the Ottomans, uh, but in the 19th century, they were especially uh, suffering. So from a Shia perspective, for, especially from an Amili Shia perspective, when the Sunnis were in control, uh, we were despised. And then when the modernites came, they controlled the economy, they controlled the state, and we were basically also despised. Now it's payback time. Now it's our time to control the state. And if we can do that via Hezbollah, then we will do that via Hezbollah. Um, that's not something that you seem to be taking into consideration. No, but, but you presume that every single Shia person is ideological to that extent? No, no, I didn't. I didn't tell you everything. Uh, I'm, mm. I'm very careful. I'm saying a large majority, which is the majority that voted for uh, for Hezbollah. No community at all. I mean, if somebody that has not a PhD, not a master's degree, if somebody that has a, a, um, a BA degree in political science tells you that any group operates 100% the oh, same way, I mean, he shouldn't be having that that base. That being said, you do have general trends. You do have large majorities sometimes within, within, within group. And I think the large majority of uh, the Shia community is operating within these ideological confines and interpretation of history that I just told you about. Yes, and I think this large majority would slowly uh, let go of this narrative without the factor of... How Hezbollah. do you know that? Because because time moves forward, it doesn't move backwards. What do you mean? I mean, uh, we, we just... We, this was, I mean, ISIS just recreated the caliphate just like five years ago. What do you yes, mean time? Yes, best, but these Lebanese people are not terrorists. They are Lebanese No, 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 I'm not, Azizi, yes. I'm not telling you they are terrorists. I'm, I'm, tell, I'm, 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 I'm objecting to your interpretation. You, you have two more Azizis before you pay for our drinks. Oh, this was the time. Are we allowed uh, to start using uh, the Azizi only? Uh, of course. <laughs> I'm objecting to your interpretation of history yes. as uh, this is what we call determinism historique. Mm. Okay, as if you're assuming there is like just one way and that's yeah. the way for forward and history moves forward. I think of history as cycles, you know, I mean, we can be, for instance, for instance, oh, right. let me give you one, one especially relevant example today. Who would have thought in, in the 1950s that the extreme right in Europe would again be a thing? I mean, Le Pen was getting zero point. Listen to this. Uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the father of uh, Marine Le Pen, was getting something like 0.5% of the vote. I voted and, for him. <laughs> Okay, now they're getting the extreme right. I mean, it's still getting 40%. Europe is back to a place only 60 years after Hitler where you have solid extreme right in, in Germany, so, but, solid extreme right in France, etc. Which, which which goes to, to show that there's no just a single direction of history. Yes, and I it's agree. Going in, you see I what agree. I mean? I agree, but, the, but, but what, what constitutes extreme 40 years ago is not what constitutes extreme today. And it's the same. Yani, uh, in Italy, Maloney wants to safeguard the same-sex civil couple marriage. Yani, this is not the same right wing of 40 years ago. And yani, extremes shrink. They become less. They're extreme today, but they're way less extreme than what they were 50 years ago. Absolutely. And, and the conservative right in Germany before Hitler was also less extreme 
than Hitler, and we still ended up with Hitler, which goes back to what exactly the point I'm trying to make. There's no a single, there's not a single direction of history, and we can be absolutely certain that if the Shia now are voting for Hezbollah, 30 years they will not be voting for Hezbollah. Yep. A majority of Alawi, in my mind, were Alawis, were uh, uh, supporters of the Assad regime in the 1980s, and a majority of Alawi today, 50 years later, are still supporters of the Alawi regime. Uh, for the life of me, I don't know why that cannot happen. I mean, I don't know how you can be you're, certain. You're right, you're right. Let's yeah. just hope we're all on the same side of history then. <laughs> Could I play with George's question and offer the other comparison uh, of a... I'm sorry for being so gloomy. I was done with this. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I wanted to just play with that question yeah. just a bit. Yeah. I've done several episodes. Nadim was actually a guest on one of them. He was yeah. part of a panel on the Northern Ireland experience with the IRA. Yeah. I, with uh, Drew Mkhayil. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, eight episodes or seven <laughs> episodes. Uh, the, the, the framework for that episode was that you can have IRA having something like 90% of the Catholic base supporting them, and you can have something like 80% or even more voting for Sinn Féin, which is the political party that emerged. Mm. Is that kind of an acceptable trajectory for what you're saying, George? In, in other words, Hezbollah stays. Hezbollah is a party, but it's not the same party. Like Sinn Féin is not oh, IRA today. There is, is a big difference. There's a big difference, and this is very relevant to your federalism idea. The difference between Bosnia uh, and Ireland and Lebanon is that size matters in Bosnia and Ireland. They, did, they, did, they do the power sharing according to voting uh, size. So if... If you vote more Catholics in, the, the Catholics have more have more share in power, and it's the same in in Bosnia. They they voted for separ separation, which is similar to the federalism you're talking about. Yeah. Um, in Lebanon, it's a completely different. Uh, it, it doesn't depend on numbers. It's it's power sharing in the abstract, where size of the size does not matter in in. In, in that, and I've been in meetings in Sarajevo, where Sarajevians were saying, "This is not us. This is how the West, in uh, after killing its, themselves for uh, each other for hundreds of years, uh, conceived of societies in in Westphalia and in Augsburg and places like that, and they're coming to to impose it on us." to have separate separate communities living in separate lives and voting in separate. But that's not us because historically, for hundreds of years, we've lived to, we've lived together and, 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 and that's so a small episodes of do not color the, the but so, but uh, small uh, episodes where tens of thousands of people get no, started. Minus to, the small yeah. detail, everything is perfect. But, but you see, okay. when you go to, um, Next time you go to Cyprus, yeah. go to the Turkish part. I did. The Turkish Cypriots. I lived there for a year. The Turkish Cypriots uh, hate the Turks. They call them the Anatolians, and and they consider themselves the losers in in this equation because they're they've been condemned to live with their fellow Turks, whereas they're used to living in a in a diverse society with with with, with the Greeks. 
the Greeks care, are, are less of losers, but you should ask this. In the same way, in, in Lebanon... I think there's actually more Turkish in, citizens in northern Cyprus today than Turkish than, Cypriot citizens. Of course, yeah. yes. They, they've, yeah. been, they've been driven out. They, they, and uh, in, in Lebanon, don't ask the Christians. Ask the Muslims. The, the Muslims are more keen on the Christians staying than the Christians themselves are keen on staying. <laughs> in, in, and I've experienced this. I've, I've once organized a meeting during the civil war between a, 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 uh, an MP and a, an academic. Uh, the, the academic was Christian and was telling the, the, the Sunni MP, you have to understand our fears. We, the Christians, are afraid of fundamental Islam. And the MP told him, you are afraid of fundamental Islam? I am far more afraid of fundamentalist Islam. And the reason why I want you to stay with me is because you are the only protection against such, uh, such, such fundamentalism. So, so would, would you allow me to put what you just said to the test? Yes. Okay. So when you say the Muslims want the Christians to stay in Lebanon, yeah. let's put that to the political test. So... What the Christians want above anything else is for Lebanon to remain as much as possible away from the conflicts of, of, of the region. That, supposedly at least, that was the mythak al-watani, la sharq wa la gharb. That was the deal. The, the Christians would accept that the French would leave in exchange. Uh, the Muslims would accept the finality of, of Lebanon as an entity and la sharq wa la gharb. Okay. Yeah. So that was supposed to be the deal in the 1940s. In the 1950s, Nasserism became a thing, and you had the UAR, the United Arab Republic. If the Muslims truly wanted the Christians to feel at home, all right, they shouldn't have been so keen on uh, uh, aligning, aligning themselves with Nasser. In fact, Nasserism, the moment Nasserism became a thing in the region, it became a thing within uh, 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 Muslims in, in Lebanon and suddenly you ended up with the new slogan not La Sharq wa La Gharib if you remember Badna al-Wahda Bakir Bakir Mahal Asmar Abdul Nasir How does that translate into It translates into Mukhabarat being clever no, no, and not creating slogans See, <laughs> Don't put it on the Mukhabarat Nasserism hundreds of thousands millions of Arabs everywhere identified with, with Nasser, including hundreds of thousands of Muslims in this country. Yeah. So uh, let me put to what you said to the empirical test. So, okay, so in 1969, the Christians wanted, did not want the PLO to become a state within the state, right? No. No, they did not want it. The, the Christians made, the, the, the Cairo agreement was made by the Christians, no, not, that's not by not the true, Muslims. Actually. No, no, that's not true. The, 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 the Cairo uh, agreement Rashid Karami was... Boycotted, Rashid Karami boycotted the state for seven months until the Lebanese state went on its knees and basically surrendered yeah. uh, to, uh, to the PLO. And then again, what I'm saying is not on the level of the, of the elite. I'm talking about, because the example you said, an ordinary Muslim just told the ordinary Christian. Not or, not or whoever. Ordinary, the, point is, the point is, the popular base of the PLO in Lebanon was not in Kisarwain, was not in, in Bshar. The popular base was among Lebanese Muslims. So again, let me put what you just said to the test. If truly they wanted Krishna to feel at home, why did they support the PLO, which led to the Lebanese state surrendering to the PLO? I can continue again. Khomeinism in the 1970s became a thing in Iran. Automatically, not all Muslims, obviously, but enough Muslims imported Khomeinism in Lebanon, and here we are. What I'm trying to say every time 
every time you had some kind of illiberal ideology appearing in the region, whether it be uh, Nasser, whether it be Arafatism, whether it be communism, automatically it becomes a thing in Lebanon via you know, one sector of uh, Lebanese Islam or another. That makes living in this country impossible for the Christians. So please don't tell me that, you know, they want you to stay. They, that's simply, if you want me to stay, I need to stay comfortable in this country. I cannot be comfortable uh, with Nasser. I cannot be comfortable with Arafat. I cannot be comfortable while surrendering the sovereignty in Lebanon for the PLO. I cannot be comfortable with Khomeinism. So forgive me, this is what you're saying again. This is what I call and I don't mean it in a disrespectful way. This no, is no, what I, I call political romanticism, okay. which I reject in favor of historical empiricism. Um, you see, when there are strong regional movements, mm. the, the, the minority that follow, the, follow it take control. There are, in Europe, there are these strong uh, Christian movements like Orban, Christian nationalist movement, Orban. And in Lebanon, we are, in a way, you are, and so is Jubran Basil and others, riding that wave. Don't put me on the same... Uh, you are, I'm sorry, but you are in the same boat. In the same boat. In the same boat. You are, you are in the same boat as Jubran Basil. And you'll have to share with him and you'll have to share with That's him fine. the, the power, I'll vote against him. That's fine. I vote against him. And he will use Hezbollah against you yeah. on... on uh, uh, you see, when there are illiberal... The, the, the illiberal uh, movements, even if they are a minority, they will... They, 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 they gain control very quickly in a homogeneous uh, society. Aziza, you're missing... That's another argument. No, no, after 11, it's double. Uh, it's, okay. Everyone gets two glasses. You're, 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 missing, you're missing the point. You, you said Muslims want Christians to yes, remain. Yes, yes. Okay, yes. for that to be true, th there are some political conditions to be met, and I don't, I, I don't see them being met. So it's easy to say that. Yeah. You know? But it doesn't matter. I mean, words do not matter. What matters facts, political behavior. Political behavior systematically is creating conditions that basically are inconvenient for the future of Christian presence in this country. So, so, so now you think that because the, you're, you're going back to that the majority of the Shia want Hezbollah. A majority of Sunnis accepted. Uh, Accept what? Uh, the Hurriyat al-Amal al-Fida'i. Well, that created uh, uh, conditions in, in Lebanon, security conditions, political conditions. Can I tell you how many Christian ministers in the government in the last 15 years were active members of the PLO? Aziz, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. But I'm not is. saying every single Muslim is like that or every single Christian. Because you're talking I, about two different periods, you see, in... In, this, in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't religious. It was... It's, it never, was more it's not religious today. Right. I mean, that's a different. That's a completely different debate, by the yeah. way. Uh, when I when I talk about sex, I'm talking uh, I'm talking about uh, uh, social identities. Uh, you can be perfectly atheist and be communitarian. Yeah. Adolf Hitler was completely atheist, but he hated the Jews. Uh, uh, Anti-Semitism, speaking of that, began as a religious quarrel 
between Christian and Jews. Eventually, it evolves into a racial ideology that you could be somebody completely atheist and yet hate the Jews. I make a big difference between religion and, and communitarian identities. What I'm talking about is communitarian identity, not religion. Okay. But, but, but Let me see if there's anyone that has any other question. Yeah. Uh, Simon, maybe we can give it to... Is there anyone? I have one. Right okay, Hi. please. Thanks. Okay. Um, okay, so this is me. Can you just introduce yourself? Please? Oh, yes. Hi, my name is Misa. Um uh, this is me speaking strictly from, you know, being born in the U.S., growing up in the U.S., and experiencing federalism over there as it is. Um, you know, we have 50 states and then a federal government. Uh, and it's that, that system seems to be working over there. However, we can't compare it to here because, you know, in the U.S., there's the idea of the separation of church and state, sure. which we do not have here. So I guess um, earlier, sorry, let me pull up my question. When it was said, you know, that federalism was described as an imperfect solution that is real and can work, can it actually work here, given the fact that there is no separation of church and state? There is. I'm sorry, but Lebanon has much more separation of church and state than any than any other country. It is, in, 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 in fact, in unique in, in, in not in, only in the Arab world, in, in, even in Europe. We have complete separation because we don't have uh, civil civil status laws. Each It's separation of churches and state, and each church is free to practice its own canon in uh, when it comes to marriage and uh, civil, civil matters like inheritance and death and, and, and that. So we are the most secular society in in, in, in in the world, probably, uh, after India, maybe. But I'm in going to actually after. interject this time. So, yes, um, the Me civil neither. status thing, Anna Hon, right in front of you. Uh, your, yeah. The civil status thing is actually um, somebody like me, an atheist or a secularist, real secularist. Uh, what law do I follow? Whose church, whose mosque, whose whatever? Uh, dictates my status and under under federalism you mean i'm um, under just federalism under this uh, so-called secular state that we're living in well, well I, I don't think we are living in a secular state i th i think uh, officially in the constitution so it doesn't say islam is the religion of the state or christianity is the religion of the state and that sets us apart from totally from debate, the arab world but at the same time we don't have uh civil marriage Right. But civil so marriage we, is we not secular. I'm sorry. Civil marriage is not separation of church and state. Civil marriage is the hegemony of the state over the church. I mean, I can in Lebanon, a, a, a unified civil marriage law would be the state imposing a law on all the other religion, on all the churches, which is not separation. But uh, no, I think Hisham was answering more the where does someone like Samir fit in? Samir mean the audio engineer. Yeah. Ah, the audio guy. But I'm going to say, I'm could you say who you are, what you do? Yes. Yeah, hello. 
my name is Hassan Meray. I'm uh, entrepreneur, artist, and uh, activist since 2019. Um, I'd like to ask Mr. Hisham, your numbers about the majority of Shia is uh, voting for Hezbollah. You said 95%. Where it is, where it's coming from? Okay, so uh, Jean Akhoul, uh, who's an expert uh, on elections, maybe you've seen him on TV, he wrote a very good book mm. called Intikhabat uh, 2022 So he analyzed the votes of every sect in, in numbers. So if you go to page 205, he mentions the numbers pertaining to the Shia. I didn't say that 95% voted for Hezbollah alone. Actually, Min uh, Asl. So out of 562, I think Hezbollah got something like 350. So a bit more than 50%. But I did say that... Uh, um, Majority uh, of Shia. Uh, Hezbollah and allies. So if you count uh, Hezbollah, Harakit Amal, yes. and, and yes. Uh, the other... Yani, so that accounts to more than 95%. Yeah, 95% of the 49% that voted. Yeah, but... 51% of the voters, they didn't vote because yeah. they are um, victims. And, and they, they no didn't choice. go. That, they no, didn't wait, go to vote. Wait. So this is okay. I see your and, point. And out of the forty-nine percent, you don't know what kind of situations they they are uh, when they go to votes. Like myself, I went to vote and I was feeling I was pants. I I was I was looking at uh, Hezbollah members on the street holding guns with big beards, and I was I was thinking that someone has. Uh, <coughs> That someone has a camera over my head when I vote to someone else than Hezbollah. So the threat was real. And uh, if, I, um, if I am going to take all these people um, into a federal uh, state, um, I'm telling them, listen, guys, you sort out your I don't, uh, I don't know what to do with you. And okay. I see your point. Yeah. Now, let's Thank you so it. much. No, you're welcome. Wait, let's take so to go back to your first question, that's a book that I suggest you, uh, uh, you read because it's really it's really professional work. Again, John Akhul, Intikhabat uh, 2022, Al Demokratia Al Mu'ajala. Go to page 205 and you'll get the 95% uh, number that I'm citing. Uh, that's, uh, that's one. Second, uh, if you look at uh, most elections, typically the, the the ratio of people voting is somewhere between uh, 47, 48 to 52, 53, 54, something like that. Um, so the fact that 49 or almost 50 percent of Shia voted, that's not an unusual number. That's This is the usual ratio. Of people who it's vote. It's a high ratio. Uh, uh, it's actually slightly higher than other ratios. So it's not a low ratio. This is what I'm trying to say. Uh, third. In Iraq, it was like 12 to 15 percent. Far less. That was, a, yeah. that was much was more of a, of a rejection yes. vote. Yeah, yeah. So Hassan, uh, that's a good ratio. That's a legitimate ratio, 50 percent voting. That's not the majority. That's not the majority. But no. The majority, you never have a, like 90 percent. No, I said the majority of Shia who voted. So 95% of Shia voters indeed voted for Hezbollah and Harakit Amal. Because there was no choice. So three, that's actually not true that there was no choice. For instance, uh, one of the most impressive 
candidates in the elections happened to be, in my mind at least, a guy called Ali Khalifa, uh, who's a, a Shia uh, opponent of, of Hezbollah, a left-wing Shia opponent of Hezbollah. Yeah. I'm sorry, yes, uh, I was rooting for him very, I mean, with all my heart. Obviously, I don't vote there, so it doesn't matter. Um, and, and I mean, I, in my mind, he represented a, a very, very uh, um, powerful uh, alternative. And he, unfortunately, the, the number of votes he got, unfortunately, is ridiculous. So it's simply not true that there was no alternative. There, there was an alternative. But people, so wait, I'm trying to answer one, um, one, one, one myth, what I find a myth. So the first myth is that 50% is nothing. 50% is actually a very acceptable ratio of, of vote. The second uh, uh, misconception is there was no alternative. There was an, an alternative. And people did not vote for it. And the third, the third, you know, um, in my mind, uh, false analysis that people are making when it comes to this: the 50% who did not vote didn't do that because they oppose Hezbollah. I mean, you know, how do we know? Maybe they didn't vote because they couldn't care less about politics because they prefer to spend time on the beach. I mean, we have people who are completely depoliticized. Uh, maybe they didn't vote because they are so certain that Hezbollah is going to win that, you know, they didn't bother go. Maybe because they were scared. So, I mean, I mean, oh, perhaps all these things uh, combined. But, I mean, to say that 50 percent who didn't vote automatically equates to half of the Shia opposing Hezbollah, again, from an analytical perspective, it's highly problematic. So, sorry, guys, Salma gave me the sign. I think we need to wrap it up. Yeah. Maybe just one more question and then we can... And is there somebody in the back that had a question? Can I ask a question? Uh, sure. Hi. Just uh, my, name, yourself, my name is Zaina and I'm a lawyer um, as well. So, Zamila um, I have a <laughs> I have a question. Um, this is a wonderful, wonderful podcast. Thank it's you. It's amazing, really. And like being here on a Saturday night. Uh, it's just fascinating. I have a question regarding like the idea, just entertaining the idea of federalism. Yeah. When I hear you out trying to think about like what could be a durable kind of solution, I hear you out thinking about like each community or each sect as a sect, but I do not hear really the nuances. The, the nuances yeah. and what happens with the dynamics within the sects. And I do not also hear the very, very basic right, the fundamental right of self-determination of people who are not painted all in one color within these communities. So how does the imaginary kind of exercise work out for people who are not similar? It's not like every experience within the community yeah. is one community. No, of course. The second, like, so, and the second thought that I have, which is, uh, I'll bundle them up, like the let, three let questions. Me, let me answer one after the other. How, la, how la, I'll that? give you the three and then you no, wrap no, it you up. You know what, well. let's, could you just ask yeah, one question? Because question, I think Sarma yeah, yeah, really the wants question, us, really, yeah. The question is, how, how can we think of federalism that really takes into account the needs and the priorities of the people? And then, you're, the, the idea is for, it's a futuristic idea. So how do you factor in the needs and the priorities of the young generation and where Lebanon is going to be? And the very super direct question now is where do Palestinians fit in this cantonization of federalism? 
اوكي طيب ليت بي بيجين وذ ذا رايتس اوف ذا بيبل ون ريزن واي اي ام سو انتوزياستيك اباوت فيدرالزم اتس بيكوز ان ماي مايند ات امباورز اوردينري بيبل whereas uh, the central state puts all the power within an elite uh, that rules the country from from Beirut and you know it's it would be it's very difficult for people out you know in the regions to have any say in the decisions that affect their life i'll give you an example let us say that uh, the minister of education uh, belongs to harak tamal and let us say that you are an ordinary citizen in tripoli and you find that the public uh, educational sector in Tripoli is up, is crumbling okay what leeway do you have as someone from Tripoli over uh, a minister whose power base is in the south answer zero by contrast had we had federalism and you have uh, uh, actually a government in Tripoli that is handling Uh, the uh, educational sector in Tripoli, then as someone from Tripoli, you'll have far more leeway mm. uh, putting that government to the test than putting Harakit Amal to the test. Because guess what? Harakit Amal could not care less about Tripoli, just as Wadi Jumblad power base is not dependent on how people in Chari feel about things. And Samir Jaja can go all his life without caring about how people in Tier are living, etc., etc. that's the centralized system for you what i'm imagining is breaking this up and basically taking power from the center and giving it to the people in the regions and yeah. so that i hope i hope that i answered that dimension of your question now um for what would happen for secular people within nothing nothing absolutely will happen imagine you are currently a member of the ssnp hizb al-sur al-qawm al-ijtima' that's as secular as it gets you can still you know uh run to the al-maqad al-maruni fi bsharri i mean uh, secular parties can still field candidates to al-maqad uh, al-shi'i in whatever jbail bint jbail the same thing would happen to uh, when you have federalism let us say that kisarwin uh, is a, is a wilay is a canton and then you have the lebanese forces versus some kind of new liberal secular party if the new liberal secular party wins then they will be in control of the local government and what's what's you know, what, what's the big deal I, i don't see why should that be uh, an obstacle or an issue and and finally for the intra uh, sectarian dynamics i think you mentioned that as well what would happen to you know i mean currently you have let us say the lebanese forces and and the tayarauni Uh, competing for who has more seats in the matin okay why would it be problematic if they were competing under a federal uh, uh, arrangement for who has more mps in the matin and who's also the governor of the matin if it, if it could happen now it could happen after so i don't see you know i understand your questions but i don't see that as an obstacle Uh, to federalism if, if anything especially the first point if anything federalism disempowers the ruling elite and gives power to ordinary people which which is which is what i presume we all want now when it comes to uh, the palestinians what would happen to, to to them or to the syrians for that matter yeah i mean you could uh, allow you could imagine a system in which every uh, canton would vote that I would accept, let us say, uh, 5% of uh, non-Lebanese population in, on my territory. Why would you fragment, not 
because in because in federal the very logic of federalism no no that's fine and in the very logic of federalism is that most decisions are not taken on the taken on the central level they are taken on the local level so i would imagine also if in a hypothetical scenario if lebanon becomes a federal state uh Kisaruin can decide that i can agree for instance 10% uh of the level of the population uh, let us say there is like uh, i don't know 500,000 people living there i can accept 50,000 refugees uh, another state could say no i accept 25,000 another state could accept 100,000 then these will be decided on a local level uh democratically why not Nadim, did you want to say anything before I wrap it up? No, I think I think uh, Sarmad will be very unhappy. Be unhappy. <laughs> okay, so I have permission to wind it down. Absolutely, Azizi. <laughs> <laughs> From my side, I think that Hisham, what you said throughout the episode about. the reasons you advocate for federalism beneath that there's some truth in that the more you battle hezbollah in lebanon the fewer christians you have and the fewer muslims too and all types of denominations are killed by that group on the way whether it's samir asir or more recently lukman slim or everyone in between and before and probably after So the security challenge has destroyed Lebanon and all its communities too. And I don't think that is an excuse to ignore Christian uncertainty. Christian uncertainty has to be talked about. I'm glad you're talking about it regularly. I'm actually learning about federalism more than I ever would have imagined because the way you talk about it day in day out and the beliefs you have, they're resonating. Whether it's in private conversations on TV shows and this difficult format but i think this is the right way to talk about it because we spent 3 hours cool. in an audience state 4 hours no, it, it's it's uh, about 3 and a half maybe it's 5 to midnight or maybe approaching 4 this is the longest conversation i've ever done so there's a lot of rich rich texture and this is our third exchange together mm-hmm. For anyone that didn't watch our exchange on MTV, I highly recommend it. Yeah. I thought that was a brilliant way of discussing difficult terrain. So I want to thank you. Thank you for believing what you believe in and in many ways teaching us too on the way. I'm learning. Nadim, uh I'm glad you're in this country. I'm glad you're not in Boston or looking for a job elsewhere. You were in New York, it didn't suit you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I walked with you in Central Park. I walked with Nadim during Corona. Actually, I almost worked for Nadim at LAU. Yeah. And I think Nadim you forgot to send me the contract and you quit LAU. <laughs> Typical Nadim. Sh- <laughs> so then I left too. I, I quit fo- the whole state. You the quit whole, the whole country the whole and then country. I found you here. It makes more sense. <laughs> you need to stay here because if I can think of the best messengers for these different ideas, it's you too. Both of you. I learned from you. I detached myself from words I used to think negatively about. I put them at a healthy distance and 500 episodes. I think you're the backbone for the podcast. So I look forward to more exchanges. Thank Let you. me give a small shout out to George Bardini. 
This gentleman woke up in Ihdin at 7 in the morning or so, 8 in the morning. He slept there at 5 in the morning last night. So he's functioning on three hours. He found his ride back down to the coast and then he fell asleep by accident in Halit. And then he woke up right at time wow. to help me bring these lights, to help set up the cameras. He's the best digital media producer in Lebanon today. Let me plug Sarmat Salibi, two decades of friendship. I don't know if his mother is still here, Wadad. Maybe she, she's up having dinner. Uh, Wadad, I haven't seen Sarmat's mom in many, many years. She looks terrific. So it's great to see her, great to do this in Iris Domain. Thank you for making this the most difficult and most special episode I've ever done. So can thank I have you, three Hisham. Can I have three seconds? Is this working? It's working. Yeah. Your experience in the last... So this is... Ah, your experience in the last three years... Five years. Five years. It would be a crime for you not to take six months off somewhere in a in a uh, academic environment or in a nice environment like uh, uh, Bellagio or somewhere and to distill everything you've learned from it because you are in a unique position to have spoken to all these people during the revolution, before the revolution, after the revolution. And uh, I admire the way you can handle people you totally disagree with in a lot of, you know how I mean, not him, not Azizak, uh, yeah? And, and uh, it would be, it would be a, a treasure for if you manage to sit down and distill all this information into a manageable 200 page book for people who, do, who cannot listen to 700 hours of podcast. That's Are you offering your home in Greece? Ahla wa sahla. Yes. <laughs> but what if I spend six months there and I come out a federalist? <laughs> then the whole journey but brought I want me my here. money back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sarmad. Thank you, George. Thank you, Samir, wherever Samir is. Thank you for doing this. You're terrific. Thank you to the audience. Good night. Thank you. Thanks for listening and watching, and a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.